Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Do you own or rent your home? <laughs> sure you do. And I bet it's a ton of work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy, super easy, to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto insurance. And it's a good thing, too, because you've already got so much to do around your house and keeping things moving. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much money you can save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. You'll be glad you did, and the big man Conrad will be proud of you for saving that money. You ever hear some of my commercials and think to yourself, eh, that sounds too good to be true. That's probably malarkey. Malarkey. Is that even the word people say anymore? Here's the deal, man. It's real. Just ask Jason up in North Branch, Minnesota. He left us a five-star review for our work over at SaveWithConrad.com. He had this to say, my fellow wrestling fans and podcast listeners, Conrad's message is real. This process is very easy. Believe me, I've refinanced twice in the last 12 months. If the need ever arises again, without hesitation, I would make the call. Thank you, Conrad, and especially thank you, Derek. When you guys are in Minnesota, give me a shout. I'd love to buy you each a drink. We helped Jason save some cash and get an even better deal than he got somewhere else before, and you can do it too right now. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket, but it's worth another look. I'm telling you, what have you got to lose? This is a no-lose situation. The worst-case scenario is we say, you know what, dude? You got a pretty good deal. Keep doing what you're doing. Wouldn't you just like to have that peace of mind of knowing you've got the best deal for your family? Well, that's what my family can do for you right now at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? When I say my family, by the way, I mean it. Derek's my cousin. We're going to save you some cash. Save with Conrad.com. Cuz, let's hook it up. I love talking about our friend Steven Singer. I'll tell you, the competition must really hate this guy. He just makes the experience of buying a diamond better and better, and he makes it fun. Steven is the very first to offer each and every customer the perfect price. That's right. Have you ever wondered if you're getting the best price? Are you uncomfortable negotiating? Head to Steven Singer Jewelers and you're guaranteed to get the perfect price. You'll never pay more than a guy sitting next to you. And here's a little insider tip. Most jewelers mark their merchandise way up just to mark it down to make you feel like you're getting a deal. The guy next to you may be paying less. Do you want the most important purchase of your life to be based on your negotiating skills? Not the case at Steven Singer. Because at Steven Singer Jewelers, you're guaranteed to get the perfect price all day, every day, 365 days a year. 
That's why we trust Steven Singer. He makes the experience of buying a diamond so easy. So check out Steven Singer Jewelers at the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly or online at IHateStevenSinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers, one place, one price. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Enjoying another day, another opportunity to be with you here on 83 Weeks, where enlightening the audience isn't a job, it's a calling. Well, I'm glad you see it that way, because we're going to have fun today, paying tribute to one of the all-time greats, uh, certainly a Hall of Famer in his own right, Mr. Perfect, a.k.a. Kurt Henning. But before we talk about him, we got to talk about another hall of famer, Eric, congratulations. Can you believe this finally happened? I know for a while it felt like, at least from a fan perspective on my side, isn't this long overdue? And you wondered, well, would this keep him out? Would that keep him out? It's happening, man. Congratulations. Thank you, buddy. I, I appreciate it. It's been a really, uh, amazing couple days really since uh last thursday morning at about 6 a.m uh overwhelmed just overwhelmed with you know best wishes and support and it's just really really cool and i you know I, we talked about this on ad free shows last night because we had a little uh celebration for family so to speak and you know it's not like the thought hasn't crossed my mind over the last 10 years or so, because every time WrestleMania comes around and hall of fame inductees start getting announced, of course, my social media blows up and right. everybody's wondering when. So the thought is, you know, I would be lying if I said, I never thought about it, but I don't, I've never thought much about it uh, because I know who knows, you know, it could be this year. It could be 10 years from now. It could be never, you know, you, there's just no, you have no control over it. So I try not to worry about it, I guess, or think about it too much. But when I have thought about it, I I've often kind of convinced myself, I guess, um, how I would feel. And I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. I thought it would be pretty cool. And, you know, it'd be, I'd, I'd be honored and I'd, I'd be proud and all that. But the, I, because of the overwhelming support over the last few days, I, kind of took it to another level for me. So it's been pretty cool, man. I don't know that you saw, but both, uh, Vince Russo and Dave Meltzer were really high on your announcement and thought that you deserve to be in the hall of fame and they were happy for you. And, and they both made social media posts about it. I mean, I don't know what to think, man. Or, or is everybody just getting a little nicer in their old age? That's great stuff. I'm glad to see it. Well, I didn't see Vince Russo's. Uh, he blocked me a while ago, so <laughs> I I don't see any of anything that he posts. So uh, 
And I certainly don't follow Meltzer, so I didn't see anything that he posted. But hey, you know, if, if they did, then uh, thank you very much. I, I am as grateful for that um, endorsement as I am from, you know, a lot of the fans that uh, I heard from over the last few days. So uh, that's pretty cool. It is cool. And so far, you know, as you and I are recording, all we know about this year's hall of fame is yourself and Molly Holly. Is that right? Yeah. For, uh, 2021, I think those are the uh, only two announcements so far. So I'm sure something will be coming out while I'm everybody's sure something will be coming out this week. Uh, Vince Russo tweeted out. So I'm not asked a million times. Congrats to at E Bischoff for being inducted into the at WWE HOF dating all the way back to the early days of the AWA. Eric has contributed in a tremendous way to the wrestling profession as a whole, both behind the scenes and in front kudos. So how about that, man? That's pretty nice. I thought, well, that's awesome. That's awesome. I, and I, I mean this when I say it, I'm very appreciative of that. Thank you very much, Vince. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, as we mentioned, Dave Meltzer was complimentary as well. I don't know, man. I feel like maybe we should hit the reset button. Try being nice. You want to try that? Maybe, maybe we could try. I, I could try being nice. You know, I've been overwhelmed with a lot of really positive vibes this weekend. So there's a chance I could turn the corner when it comes to those two individuals. I'm pretty, you know, I'm a pretty positive dude. You're going to, you're going to have to look pretty hard to find somebody who's generally more positive than I am, but there are some very specific things that can turn me a little dark and nasty. And we all know what those are, but uh, <laughs> Hey, maybe, you know, this is an opportunity for me to uh, improve myself and uh, up my game. So I'll, I'll give it a try. Let's see what, uh, what comments I have to respond to as we go through this show. Oh, I'm not going to beat you up on this one. This is a tribute show to, to, to Kurt. So we're going to be super positive. I don't know. I was just uh, sort of shocked that both guys responded in such a way since you know, you guys have really often, whenever your names are brought up, it feels like here comes some sparring sessions. I just thought it was a, a nice little deal that everyone can acknowledge and set aside their personal feelings and say, you know what? Eric deserves this. And I know everyone listening to this agrees, but we've also been blown up with questions like, so, Hey, who's going to induct him? So we got to ask here. Do you know who's inducting you? I do not. I, I, I do not. I'm, I'm not sure what the format for this year's hall of fame is I'm, I'm I know details are coming. I had a short conversation uh, last night before we did the ad free shows thing uh, with someone from WWE. So I know there's a lot of details, schedule details and that type of thing coming up. And uh, I'm sure I'm going to learn more, but right now I know I need to be in Tampa. Uh, and I, uh, I know what hotel I'm staying at. And I know there's a, I, I know there's a car picking me up at the airport. So beyond that, I don't really have any details. Well, I'm excited that you're getting your opportunity to go in and I don't think, um, I don't think they ever technically did anything with last year's inductee. So I assume, you know, and I'm not saying, you know, but I guess there'll be like a, a joint thing or whatever, but how about the timing of the NWO going in last year and you going in this year? That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, the, the NWO went in last year, but last year didn't happen. Right officially so yeah i don't know how they're going to do it it'll be, i'm sure all that information is going to come out um in the next couple of days 
you know, on, on, on their end of the, their meaning WWE's end of the equation, you know, there's been, uh, I'm sure some real challenging issues, you know, with what the city of Tampa feels comfortable with and what the state of Florida feels right. comfortable with and what WWE wants to do. And just, I guess I would imagine, I don't know any of this. I haven't had any conversations with anybody, but I can imagine, um, the checklists and the sign-offs for protocols and distancing and all the things that are, you know, going on behind the scenes is probably one of the reasons why details are a little slow coming out right now, because I'm sure things have been changing up until the last moments uh, last week. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm sure I'll get a bunch of information, but it's going to be a blast either way, man. I I love the hall of fame. I've, I've said this a million times on this show and others. The Hall of Fame part of the weekend is my favorite part of WrestleMania weekend because the emotions are so real and, you know, it's not the big spectacle that WrestleMania itself is, but that particular weekend to me captures a lot of real legitimate emotion. And uh, that's always fun to be a part of. Are you, uh, have you already started working on your speech yet? No, no, I don't, you know, I don't do that. Right. <laughs> it's not, I, I, I will. You know, as, as I get real close, like day before, maybe. Right. Uh, and even then, I'm not going to write a speech. I'll probably make six or eight bullet points. And in my own mind, think of a couple transitions between them. And you know, I'll just go out and improv it. You think you're going to talk about liverwurst in there? No, because that's what this show is for. Right. This show is to expand the enlightenment to, to to our audience to to expand their food choices, their knowledge of great food, and the liverwurst is or Braunschweiger, depending where you know, what part of the country you live out you lived in. Um, yeah, liverwurst and Braunschweiger are a topic for a much more in depth conversation than I probably could get away with at WrestleMania. Well, just so you know, if uh, if fans in person are allowed to attend. I'm going to buy a ticket and I'm going to yell. It's fucking daytime, Eric. (laughs) Uh, And everyone in the audience will know it was you. Uh, Real quick, before we move on from this topic, I want to mention Dave Meltzer's tweet because I know you said he's blocked or you're blocked or whatever. Someone asked him waiting on Dave Meltzer to congratulate Eric Bischoff for the Hall of Fame nod. He quote tweeted it and said, it's cool. He deserves it. He's a great television performer and nitro was a landmark show. I don't know, man. Well, it just feels like a great thing. Feels like a good day to be uh, Eric Bischoff. Yeah, it is. Thank you, Dave. Let's, uh, let's also talk about our old pal, Tony Schiavone. Last week, he launched a Kickstarter for a graphic novel. Uh, and if you're uh, wondering, like I was, what the hell's a graphic novel, it's like a thick comic book. I had to Google that. Uh, I, I thought, or I assumed it might be something Klondike bill was into, but it turns out it's a thick comic book. Uh, anyway, we did a Kickstarter uh, campaign last week and the goal was over the next 30 days, we'd like to raise $20,000. And as you and I are recording less than a week after the Kickstarter stocked, uh, kicked off, he's well past $75,000. Tony Schiavone is over Mr. Bischoff, uh, butts and seats comic is where you can check it out. That's butts and seats comic dot com and uh, there's still a lot of really cool perks and opportunities for you to get special stuff and from what i understand they're creating some new stretch goals with some new fun milestones so check it out butts and seats comic.com what do you think about maybe a bischoff graphic novel one day could we even legally show that it feels like you've lived a, a little bit more of a rowdy lifestyle than mr shivani <laughs> 
Well, in some, some respects, I probably have. In some respects, maybe not so much. Um, but before we talk about that, uh, as this podcast is, you know, it's going to drop first thing, you know, Monday, this morning, Monday morning, 6 a.m., um, and people will start seeing the video that I shot Thursday or Friday and sent in to Dave Silva and, and um, to be uploaded, put, you know, talking about Tony's graphic novel. And it's funny that you said that the way you did about Klondike Bale, because the first thing I said, and you'll see this today later in the video, is, you know, when I first heard Tony Schiavone was, you know, producing a graphic novel, I thought, oh, my God, I know Tony. Is this going to be one of those not safe for work environment kind of projects? Right. And then I saw some of the artwork and, you know, I got it, but, uh, and I'm just having fun with that, but it, I'm really excited because seriously, you know, Tony, Tony's been at the epicenter, man. He, he has been at the epicenter of wrestling, professional wrestling at a very high level for decades and decades. I think is almost as long as Bruce Pritchard or perhaps longer. I'm not sure. Um, certainly longer than I have. And, you know, Tony was right there, you know, with the Crockett's, he was right there early WCW, obviously transitioned, you know, out of Crockett promotions into WCW. He was there when Dusty took over creative. He was there when Ole took over creative. He was over there when I took over creative. I mean, and he was right. And he was there with Jim Ross and Bill Watts and all the amazing talent that has come through and the craziness that was early WCW. Um, Tony was right there. And, He's such a funny dude, you know, just by nature, his sense of humor is so fantastic. And I can't wait to see this. I, what a great idea. If you're going to write a book about your career, since everybody else, including I uh, have multiple times, <laughs> it seems what a cool idea to do it in the form of a graphic novel. Kudos to you, Tony. Check it out. If you haven't already, you can still support it and grab your copy over at butts and seats, comic.com. All right, Conrad, let's take a quick time out and talk about our friends over at NetSuite. You know, if you're a business owner, you absolutely do not need either Conrad or I to tell you that running a business is tough, but you might be making it harder on yourself than necessary. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore, man. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. You can stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch all the spreadsheets and all the old software that you've already outgrown. You know it. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud-based business system. NetSuite gives you visibility control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place, instantaneously. Whether you're doing a million dollars or a hundred million dollars in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash 83 weeks. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash 83 weeks. One more time, netsuite.com slash 83 weeks uh without further ado though man let's get into it let's talk about why we're here uh, we're covering kurt this week because uh well it's his birthday week he was born march 28th 1958 to the famed larry the axe henning right there in robbinsdale minnesota uh, he grew up with rick rude 
and he went to Robbinsdale High School along with other guys you've heard of, like Tom Zink, Brady Boone, Nikita Koloff, John Nord, Road Warrior Hawk, Barry Darso. That's all from one freaking school, Eric. And if we just encompass the whole state, you're from there, flares from there. What is it about Minnesota that just created so many great pro wrestling stars? You know, and let's not leave off Vern and Greg Gagne. Oh know. yeah, of course. Um, and and I think right there, that pretty much is one of the reasons. You know, I got up this morning and knowing we we're going to talk about this, I want to you know I want to be really clear. You know, kicking this thing off. You know, I I grew up very close to to Kurt. We we're probably a handful of miles away. You know, he went to Robbinsdale High School. I went to a school called Minnetonka Senior High School. And we were in the same conference athletically, but he was down the road a piece. So I didn't know Kurt when he was in high school or, or really afterwards, I didn't really get to meet Kurt and get to know Kurt until he came to WCW. But I knew of Kurt um, pretty much since I was in my early twenties, because we had a lot of friends, you know, mutual friends and kind of hung around in some of the same areas, but I never really got to know him. But I think, you know, you, you went through that list and I counted 12 people, including, by the way, I threw Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos, the yeah. destruction crew into that. They went to a different school, but it was formerly it was a Robbinsdale school. And then they split up and they called it something else. So Wayne Bloom and, and uh, Mike Enos need to be thrown into that list of luminaries from the state of Minnesota. But I think sure. a lot of it had to do with Vern. You know, in Vern's impact on professional wrestling, his status as professional wrestling, developing, you know, the opening up the office in Minneapolis is created opportunity. And Vern recruited, you know, Larry the Axe had graduated from Robbinsdale High School, I think in 1954. He was a state wrestling champion. Vern, of course, was an Olympic champion or made the Olympic team qualified for it in 48. So there was just that connective tissue, I think, that really started with Vern's passion for amateur wrestling. Uh, and how it evolved into professional wrestling. And for a long time, man, AWA was the territory you really wanted to be in. And I think it all had to do with Vern and the opportunities he created. And guys, you know, it's just ironic, though. So many of them came from Robbinsdale High School. And by yeah. the way, Robbinsdale High School back then was not like, you know, one of the biggest schools in the state or anything like that. It was a big school. Don't get me wrong. Suburb of Minneapolis. But um, it was certainly not the biggest, right? Certainly not, you know, Edina was the school in the late conference, you know, that seemed to produce most of the athletes because it was the richest high school and you could, you know, you could learn your sport and be coached in your sport in high school much more easily with rich mommies and daddies. Robinsdale wasn't like that. Robinsdale was a blue collar kind of, you know, suburb, um, certainly had some really nice areas, but it was more of a working man suburb. And it just kicked out, I counted a dozen, and not just a dozen wrestlers, you know, professional wrestlers that made it into the professional wrestling industry. The vast majority of them made it into the business at some of the highest levels. Right. You know, Hall of Famers included in, in you know, Olympic you know, athletes included. I mean, these are guys that really performed in, in some of the most important times in wrestling history in terms of how it helped wrestling evolve. And they performed not only at that time in history, but at a very high level at that time. It's just, uh, it feels like there's just little pockets, you know, we've all heard about West Texas state and Robbinsdale high. And it's, I don't know, there's just certain sections of the country. And perhaps to your point, it's more about the field of dreams. You know, if you build it, they will come. And 
maybe, you know, it was all about those different promoters in Texas and certainly Vern and Minnesota, but let's talk about Larry, the ax. He had such an, uh, a tough guy reputation. You probably watched Larry on TV as a kid, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, Larry was one of the, he was like the, he was the heel of all heels. You know, he was a serious heel. He was, you know, you had Mad Dog Vashon, of course, Mad Dog Vashon. I don't know if he was really a heel or not, but uh, by, by today's standards, he wouldn't be a heel at all. He'd be the biggest baby face going. But um, Larry was, Larry was that believable heel. You know, when you saw, when I saw Larry, if you happen to, you know, see him at the state fair, you know, as a young fan, that was not the guy you'd go running up and asking an autograph of. You, you wouldn't do that. You may want to do that, but you wouldn't do that because when Larry was out in public, he was Larry the Axe Hedding. He was not Larry Hedding. And he was scary, man. He was a big dude. And big old barrel chested dude. I mean, his head, it's like his head, he was just one big, giant, rock solid cylinder of humanity. He, he, was, he was impressive. And I, I may have told you this story. If I did, I'll keep it short. If you recognize it, shut me down. But I actually wrestled Kurt's, might have been Kurt's older brother, Randy Hennig. I'm not sure if Randy's older than Kurt or what. But Randy Hennig is a Hennig that wrestled for Robbinsdale High School at the mm. same weight class that I did in my senior year. And Robbinsdale was always a tough as you can imagine, <laughs> um, by the list of names we just kicked out, but they were always tough in football and in all sports, but especially wrestling. They just had this history of just being tough. And I got to wrestle Randy Hennig. So you can imagine, you know, me who is a mediocre, you know, amateur wrestler on, on a good day. Uh, I, you know, as a varsity, you know, I made the team and all that, but I was, yeah, I was just okay. You know, if the wind was blowing in the right direction and then I'm, you know, I get to face Randy Hennig, Kirk, Larry, the ex Hennig's, you know, son. Oh my God. So of course I was intimidated. We got into the match in about, I don't know. I think in the middle of the second period, Randy Hennig put me in a figure four around my, my waist and just squeezed my guts out. I mean, I was getting to the point where I, you know, I couldn't breathe. And I remember being down on the mat and he's riding me with this figure four and he's trying to roll me over to, you know, score pinfall or at least try to get a couple points. And I tried to push myself up from the mat, like a, in a yoga pose. I, I couldn't get my hips up, but I'm trying to get some distance. And I look up and I'm staring right across from Larry, the accent. He was sitting right on the first row of the bleachers. <laughs> and he had his big, he had this big giant forearm, you know, the size of a phone pole resting across his knee. And he's looking at me like you son of a bitch roll over. So yeah, that was, that was an experience. I'm just fascinated by their relationship. I think you've told us a little bit before, but let's pick it up. I know we're sort of jumping around in the story, but tell us about your experience hanging out with both of them. I think once upon a time, even when you first signed Kurt to WCW, Larry was involved in that process. And maybe you guys, uh, spent a little social time together. Can you talk to us about their relationship? You know, it, it, yeah, I, I referred back to the, the very first time I really sat down with Kurt and, and met him face to face was to negotiate or to discuss at least uh, Kurt coming over to WCW. 
Uh, my office at that time, this was before we moved to the, the, uh, the other office. So I was right in the CNN center on the 15th floor or 14th floor, whichever it was. Um, and Larry and, and Kurt came in and I had met, actually I had met Kurt, or excuse me, I had met Larry several times while I was working in the AWA. I never really interacted with him other than, you know, casual, hello, Mr. Henning, how are you? You know, joking around a little bit, talking about the weather or whatever. Uh, so I never really was involved in any business discussions in any way, shape or form with, with Larry, but we knew who each other were. So by the time Larry and, and Kurt came to my office in Atlanta, I didn't have that, you know, residual kind of high school fanboy, you know, reaction because we, we had met each other and it was comfortable. Uh, they seemed to be really, well, they were, they didn't seem to be, they were very close. Uh, you could tell that, you know, Kurt had a ton of respect for his father. You know, sure. he didn't bring Larry the Axe Henning to come and, you know, try to intimidate me. That that was not necessary. Um, but he came because he wanted to hear what I had to say, but he wanted his father to hear what I had to say so that he could make the right decision and the right choice. So I, I thought that was cool as hell, man. I enjoyed it. We didn't go out afterwards. We didn't go out to eat. We didn't go out and party. We didn't do any of that kind of stuff. It was you know, very professional. And uh, it wasn't until long afterwards that I got to know Kurt on a social basis. I've just always been uh, fascinated with Larry since I, I first met him at a colorful rally reunion um, several years ago. And when he's giving his speech, he's talking about the destroyer. And he, he, first of all, was just one, one liner after another, I, I never got to meet Kurt, but you certainly understood where Kurt got a sense of humor, just hearing his absolutely dad hold court. And he said something like, uh, look at the goddamn destroyer. He's 82 years old, still wearing a mask. Your name's Dick fucking buyer. Take that shit off. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so we're all just, you know, belly laughing. Like my God, I had no idea he had this sense of humor, but he was, uh, he was quite the character. Was he not? Oh, uh, he, he really was. And I got to see a little bit of that. Now, not in the office. Right. Right. Now, I'm, I'm going to contradict what I said earlier about when, when Larry the Axe Hunting was in public. When he was out in the general public, yes, he was that intimidating, you know, 24-hour-a-day badass heel kind of cat. But I did happen to go to a fundraiser uh, that was an invite-only fundraiser. Um, and I don't remember what the fundraiser was for. It had something to do with either fishing or hunting or something to do with conservation, yeah. that type of thing, Out, outdoor supporter kind of thing. So I, Greg and Vern asked me if I wanted to go with them. So I went with them. And of course, Larry was there. And uh, as you can imagine, yeah, cocktails were flowing throughout the evening. And then when it came time for everybody to get up and speak, Larry was there and he, you're right, man. I know exactly. I can hear it. As you're saying it, I can hear it in Larry's voice. He and he was a quick-witted, funny son of a bitch. But you, oh, you didn't always get to see that. So when you did, it was shocking. Have a hard time taking pills? You're not alone. Get the only Seldenafil and Tadalafil chewables by visiting BlueChew.com. If you like sex, you'll love BlueChew.com. BlueChew.com offers men a performance enhancement for the bedroom. At BlueChew.com, you can get the first chewables with the active ingredients Seldenafil and Tadalafil. Those are the same active ingredients as in Viagra and Cialis. A BlueChew.com affiliated physician will work with you to find the right dosage and active ingredient that's best for you. The chewables from BlueChew can be taken on a full or an empty stomach. 
Online physician consults are free at BlueChew.com, so it's cheaper than those other two, Viagra and Cialis. It only takes a few minutes to connect with a BlueChew.com affiliated physician, and if you qualify, you get prescribed online quickly. There's no in-person doctor visit. There's no awkward conversation. There's no waiting in line at a pharmacy. It ships directly to your door in discreet packaging. The chewables from BlueChew.com are made in the USA. You and your partner will love it, so chew it and do it. And here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order for free when you use the promo code 83weeks. Just pay $5 shipping. That's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com, and the promo code is 83weeks. Yeah, let's talk about uh, when Kurt actually gets into the wrestling biz. He starts in the AWA, no surprise there. Uh, it's 1980. He's a preliminary baby face when he's training. Uh, and his, his debut is to bring Larry back for a feud with Adrian Adonis. Do you remember seeing any of his early matches on TV as a fan? And if not, did you ever talk to Kurt about his training? I know this sounds silly, but it feels like there's a familiar name when it comes to training wrestlers in Minnesota that we hear over and over. Yeah, there is. And I'd like to, 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 you know, hear more and more about that and we'll get to it in a second, but I do remember Kurt early on, you know, in 1980, what was I doing in 1980? Oh, I was still kind of involved in martial arts in a pretty heavy way. So I was traveling around quite a bit and my, my head was more into, uh, to kickboxing than anything else. And at that time that, and there was this flight attendant that I got hooked up with. So just a wicked ride <laughs> but for about six months during that window. <laughs> um, whew. Oh, that just by the way, this episode sponsored by Blue Chew, but just <laughs> yeah. well, I'm going to leave it right there. None was needed then. I understand. Got it. No, but I, but I do remember Kurt uh, early, early on because again, he was from Momsdale and I knew of him. Um, he was friends of a friend, you know, type of thing. So I immediately started paying attention to him, but I immediately started loving his, his work and his character. He just had Kurt always, even early on as a, just a rookie, he just had this cocky, not quite cocky, but damn near cocky level of confidence that just kind of drew you to him as a character. I've always been fascinated by his story because it feels like you know, the first time I saw him was as Mr. Perfect. And then, you know, I get a little older and I get into tape trading and I see that, man, he had quite the career before he ever got there. Uh, eventually he leaves the AWA goes to work for the WWWF. And of course, in the Pacific Northwest to learn the craft, he comes back in 84 and teams up with his father to work a program with the road warriors. If you never saw the road warriors in the early to mid eighties, the stories are legendary. Kurt probably felt like, boy, what am I signing up for? But maybe since he's in there with his dad, that's got to make him feel a little more comfortable, right? Well, no, he was in there with his dad, but keep in mind, you know, the road warriors, Hawk and animal, they were Minnesota guys. Yeah. They all, no, they didn't go to uh, Robinsdale high school, but they all, they used to go to a, 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 a training, a gym called the gym. That was the place where all of the, that crew, John Nord and Rick Rude and, and the Road Warriors and Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos, all the names that we talked about 
all trained. And this was before, you know, Equinox and 24 hour fitness and, you know, the kind of uh, country club type of facilities that we've, we've become used to. This was back when, before those types of gems got very popular. So the gem, it was over on Highway 12 in Golden Valley, uh, not far from Virginia's office, actually. And that's where everybody that was anybody that was either in the professional wrestling business or was or wanted to be, including including Jesse Ventura, that's where they all worked out. Uh, so I'm, you know, Kurt, I'm sure got to know if he didn't already know many of those guys, like the World Warriors, for for example. I'm sure he got to know them then. Uh, so I, I think he was quite comfortable. And Kurt trained with the cat. This is where you where you were going, uh, Brad Ringens. Yep. You know, Brad. Brad is one of those. You know, those names, you don't hear, he doesn't talk about himself. He's just, he's, he's living out in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. He's like Brock Lesnar. In fact, he and Brock are very close friends. Um, He just likes to farm and he likes to be left alone. But Brad has had a significant impact on a lot of wrestlers and certainly, you know, Kurt being one of them, but it'd be an interesting story for you to tell. Let's, uh, let's keep put that in our back pocket. That's a good idea. Uh, you come into the AWA in 87 around the same time that Kurt is starting uh, his ascent. And there's always been rumor and innuendo that there was some tension between Kurt and Greg because of Kurt's rising star and maybe Greg's not so much. Do you remember seeing that feeling that hearing that any of that stuff? No. And again, you know, Kurt left really before I got to, to, uh, to, to AWA. But before we skip over that, you know, we talked about, there's a couple of things I want to talk about with Kurt in the AWA before we move on. Um, two things. One is I think Kurt, at least for me as a fan, um, before I ever got into the industry, Kurt's matches with Nick Bockwinkle, I think to this day, to this minute, and for a long time, in the future, that match will hold up to any of the great matches you want to choose from when it comes to psychology and storytelling in the ring. That match, uh, anybody that's in the industry today, I don't care how high a level you, you are or you think you are, that you'd have something to learn from going back and watching Kurt Hennig and, and Nick Bockwinkle, primarily because of Nick Bockwinkle. Kurt, because he was so freaking good and he learned so quickly and he was such a natural and a phenomenal performer with natural charisma, but he was still greener than goose shit at that point. So, you know, I don't know this as a fact, but I think it's a safe bet that Nick Bockwinkle would have called that match. And I think that match or those matches with Nick and Kurt, um, as far as storytelling and psychology, as good as it gets. You know, the physical, you know, dialogue, you know, that's a cool thing. You know, I, I like to think about wrestling as an art form, as, as a performance art, instead of just professional wrestling. Right. And if you if you look at it a little differently and you, you, you look at a movie or a television, you know, what are you relying upon? It's the spoken word. It's the physical aspects of it, of an actor and actress, but it's all, you know, dialogue, narrative. Whereas with professional wrestling, you get a little bit of that, but most of the performance, most of the art within the performance, I should say, comes from a physical dialogue. 
And the physical dialogue aspect of professional wrestling has really changed, you know, over the last 30 years, obviously, or 40 years. And it's much higher risk, more dynamic, more visual, a lot more cool shit. But if you just compared any of the great matches that you want to choose from and pick that out and then don't compare it, you know, from a physical dialogue point of view, but just compare it from a psychology point of view and from a storytelling point of view in the ring. I think Kurt and Bachwinkle holds up to just about anything out there. And that's, that's amazing because Kurt was so young. WWE network. No. And what do they call it now? The Peacock network. Yeah. They're on Peacock now. All right. Go over to Peacock. Check it out. AWA content is all over there and uh, see for yourself. It's really good stuff. And the other thing I don't want to gloss over is because it's just ironic and cool. Um, people forget often that Scott Hall was kind of a big damn deal in the AWA around yeah. 84, 85, 86 and teamed up with Kurt. And that was a great, great, great tag team. Those two were so good together because they had so much fun together. The chemistry was off the chart and think back at just how good a young Scott Hall was, you know, we, we, we've seen a lot of Scott as he's got older and had some injuries and all that, but you go back and look at Scott Hall when he was breaking into the business or when he was early, you know, in his career trajectory and look at that period of time when he and, and Kurt were hooked up, man, it was some awesome stuff. No doubt about it. Uh, let's talk about, um, uh, Bachwinkle for a minute here, because I don't think we've spent a lot of time talking about him. And I think he's probably, I don't know why this is. Maybe this is something you and I can work on. Tony Schiavone and I have worked really hard over the last year or so to try to highlight all of the great contributions of Jim Crockett promotions, because I felt like people were just sort of forgetting about all the great stuff that Jim Crockett did. And I think we probably need to do that for Vern, but Bachwinkle specifically stands out. He was sort of the you know, for lack of a better word, cause I understand there was only one of these. He was like the Ric Flair of the AWA, right? He was in, but there was a difference. Yes. You know, uh, Nick Rick, you know, even early on. And I, I see the clips now, obviously I wasn't a fan back then because I, you know, that was before cable television became a big thing. So I wasn't aware of, of a lot of Rick's work early on in the beginning of Rick's career. And Rick started out in Minneapolis as well, yep. uh, training, you know, with, with Vern. Um, but he, he quickly, you know, moved out of the territory, went down South. Um, where were we what about Nick Bockwinkle <laughs> being sort of the AWA's Rick? Oh Flair. yeah. The difference. I was, no, I was, I wanted to point the difference up between Rick and, and Nick very similar in terms of their technical ability and proficiency and, and all of that. I mean, they were both from a psychology point of view, you know, they were both, you know, uh, cut out of the same cloth for sure. Right. right. But Nick had a, or Rick had a tendency to be a little bit more flamboyant and over the top, really, you know, as a character. And Nick was, Nick was the serious, yet really classy version of Rick, Rick's character, you know, dressed to the nines, you know, he was as articulate as he could possibly be. When you go back and look at some of Nick Bockwinkel's promos, by the way, his interview skill surpassed his technical skill, if you can believe that. And if you go back and study Nick Bockwinkel, you'll know how big of a hell of a compliment that is. 
Nick was so gifted when it came to interviews. He would so elegantly and articulately describe how he was going to dismember his opponent in the (laughs) ring and spread body parts all over the front row in a way that could be described as simply artistic. I mean, that would, that would be a Nick Bockwinkle type interview, right? right? But he would make you just go, Oh my God, somebody needs to put him out, but that was the magic. And he was so good at it, but he, he, you never saw Nick Bockwinkle, you know, lose his shit. Right. Like we've seen Rick do, right. you know, so effectively, by the way, but that was really the only difference between the two is Rick would take his character, you know, into the ozone every once in a while where Nick was same kind of heel character, but just always in 101% control. You know, I've been lied to my whole life. No, not about wrestling. I've been in on that for a while. I mean, about where I was from, who I am. You see my family for years has told me. Just like everybody else from Alabama, you know, we're part native American, you know, everybody who claims to be from Alabama also claims to be native American. I'm one sixteenth of that, or I'm one eighth of this, or I'm one thirty second of that, but it's always Choctaw or whatever. How about I found out for sure. I took an ancestry DNA test. That's not true. And here's the thing. There are many paths to finding your family story. Whichever way you choose, tracing your family generations back with a family tree or uncovering your ethnicity with an ancestry DNA kit, whatever you pick, you can do both and you can get started because it's easy with ancestry. An ancestry DNA test will tell you where your ancestors are from and an ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees let you discover their personal stories. You might even find a famous relative or maybe a photo of your great grandma as a little girl. Whatever you find, it's sure to change the whole way you look at your family's history and yourself. Because by the way, the story of your family is really the story of you. My favorite part of this whole process though, I get to go back and rub it in mom and dad's face. And then we have a conversation about it. And then we call up aunts and uncles. And the next time we get together, that's all we talk about. But it's fun. It's fun to learn together and trace it back together because it's what we all have in common as a family. Brings us closer together uh, and I just really enjoy it. By the way, the Ancestry DNA kit will reveal ethnic origins and provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. You're telling me. By the way, Ancestry DNA will not just tell you what countries you're from, but they'll tell you where people lived inside that country, why they moved, where they moved, and no other DNA test delivers a unique interactive experience like that. Only Ancestry DNA. And it's easy to start making these discoveries with Ancestry right now. Just grab yourself an Ancestry DNA kit and start a free trial to amplify your discoveries with their billions of records. Start exploring your family story today and head to my URL. It's Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks. But the reputation for being the best wrestler in the promotion, the ability to have a great match with anyone, an incredible promo, a sharp dresser, he was the top guy. And so it's cool just to be able to brush up against him. And, uh, that was certainly the case with, with Kurt, but then when Brock Wiggle leaves to become a road agent for Vince McMahon and, and retire on his way out, he, uh, he puts Kurt over and they have a 60 minute match on ESPN. Kurt's bleeding buckets. 
Uh, this really sort of puts him on the map in a big way. And, uh, he finally, Kurt finally wins the AWA title, uh, from Nick Bockwinkle at super clash on May 2nd, 1987. It was maybe a little bit of a convoluted finish. Meltzer would say the idea was they were grooming Henning who, after establishing him as a heel to win the title from Bockwinkle a few months down the line at a summer spectacular, but Henning had other plans before the match. When word was out, Henning was being primed for a big push. The WWF started negotiations with him again, since Kurt had yet to be given that promised title belt. The idea was agreed upon that Henning, who was tired of waiting for what was promised to him for six months would do the match, beat the champion on TV. And even though he wouldn't get the title, he would disappear and show up on WWF TV, thus embarrassing the AWA one more time. So this is an interesting story and I want to bring it up to you because you're here to sort of pick up the pieces of the AWA with Vern. Did you ever hear about this transition or, you know, what he was upset about or just this whole situation here? No, I never did. You know, I'm sure it came up in passing from time to time, but you know, what I remember, whatever the heat was, if there was heat, I don't know that that was the case. I don't know. I wasn't there and I'll just let Dave's uh, coverage uh, speak for itself because I wasn't there and I don't have an opinion. I, all I do know is that down the road, uh, Kurt would be in the office occasionally socially and he and Greg seemed to get along just fine. Right. And uh, so I don't know. I, I, I just don't know what the heat was and I don't know what the backstory was. Let's also mention that, uh, Kurt did win the AWA title, uh, as we said, uh, from Bachwinkle, but it, that's the way it looked on TV. Eventually he does get a hold of that belt. Uh, he holds it for 53 weeks before dropping it to Jerry Lawler on May 9th, 1988. And then of course he makes the deal to join the WWF, but just to put it in context, man, everybody who was anybody in their professional wrestling business, certainly in 86, but by the time 87 rolled around, everyone wanted to go work for Vince. It was becoming very, very apparent in 87 and 88 that the, the days of the territories, those were bygone. That was a bygone era at that point. Would you agree? It was. And by the way, you, you clarified my own timeline. I actually did work with Kurt for a few months. Um, when I first started with the AWA before he left, because I remember the Lawler bats, that's what jogged my memory. Uh, that was a big damn deal. You know, Mike Shields, the guy who really got me the opportunity to work with Vern. He's really the one that got me in the door. Um, Mike had worked for Jerry Jarrett and was close friends with Jerry Lawler. So I, I kind of got to hear a little bit of what was going on behind the scenes during the setup of that and some of the issues that were associated with it. So I, that's why I do remember that. But yeah, they were, I mean, look, that's where the money was. You know, Ventura was gone. Hogan was gone. Okerlund was gone. Heenan was gone. No, that was Minneapolis. You know, the, all those guys were Minnesota. All those guys were AWA at a very high freaking level. And they're out. This like, I'm out of here, man. I know where the money's at. So of course a guy like a young man, like Kurt is going to want to number one, be with his buddies uh, as much as anything. And number two, be where the money and the opportunity was. And right. That's where it was 1987, 88. It was not in the AWA. The handwriting was on the wall. It was all in this little sleepy oceanside town called Stamford, Connecticut. 
and in Stamford, Connecticut is where they would shoot a series of Mr. Perfect vignettes. I know you weren't watching the WWF at the time, but have you ever seen those old Mr. Perfect vignettes the way they introduced? Oh, no, I would drop in from time to time. That's when WWE or WWF at the time was really blowing up in Minnesota. Keep in mind, I, you know, I'm a huge wrestling fan growing up as a kid in Detroit. I moved to Pittsburgh. I find out there's this guy named Bruno San Martino. That's really the world heavyweight champion. I didn't know territories existed. I thought my guy in Detroit was the world heavyweight champion. I didn't know there was another one in Pittsburgh. Damn. Somebody should have told the kid. Right. Anyway, I get to Minneapolis and then it's, you know, Vern, you know, WWF didn't exist to me. (laughs) I never heard of it as a kid growing up in Minnesota. So when all of a sudden WWF now is become a national company and there's an entirely new wrestling promotion and, Oh, all my favorite wrestlers from the AWA, where'd they go? They went over to this thing called WWF. So I tuned into it. And what did I see? Oh my God, production values. I didn't know that's what they were called at the time, but it was definitely a cooler looking show. Oh yeah, for and sure. That's where all the talent was. So that, oh yeah, that was the shift. You know, I shifted as a fan to the WWF because it was all brand new to me. Tell me what you thought of the uh, Mr. Perfect vignettes. I mean, to this day, fans uh, still talk unbelievable. about it. Yeah. And that's, and that's something, I mean, it was so curt. I mean, I guess that's why I loved him as much as I did because it was, I mean, I can see Kurt doing that, walking out some of this stuff, doing just walking out to the car, joking around, you know, trying to do some of the silly things that he was doing. Not that he could execute him by the way, but you know, he'd certainly try. Cause that was, it was so, it was so, uh, it was so close to his real personality that it worked. I mean, they just had such a great run with that Mr. Perfect character. I mean, so many of our listeners today grew up with that Mr. Perfect character. And even though he was a bad guy, he made it hard to hate him because everybody wanted to be able to do the stuff that those vignettes showed that he could do. He would go on to work with Hulk Hogan and the ultimate warrior, but he was never quite the top guy in the WWF. And Bruce and I have talked about this before that they tried him against Hogan and, uh, they even ran Madison square garden. And for whatever reason, the show didn't sell out. And that was in an era where Hulk Hogan versus brother love would sell out. So they were all sort of scratching their head. Why could this be, uh, you've promoted a thing or two in your day. Why do you think Kurt versus Hogan wasn't box office back then when he was red hot with the Mr. Perfect character without having benefit of looking at the storyline going into that or any of the promotion going into it, I would say that I don't think Kurt was a believable threat to Hulk Hogan at the time. Okay. Kurt, Kurt was, he was a cocky, entertaining heel. And I don't think a cocky, entertaining heel provided a believable enough threat to Hulk Hogan. I think you're on the money there because in that era, it was a monster factory for Hogan. I mean, it had to be someone who looked like Bam Bam Bigelow or the one man gang or the big boss man or King Kong Bundy. It needed to be a a lumbering giant, not necessarily, you know, an athletic marble, right? Yep. Yep. I mean, Kurt was a big dude, by the way. Yeah. But he, he didn't have that larger than life persona you know, that Hogan did. And like I said, I think because at the time, you know, that's that funny cocky heel was a relatively new thing. Yes. You, know, you, you hadn't seen a lot of 
that before. You've seen, you know, different kinds of heels, but not the funny kind and not the really cool kind. And I think he was just a little too cool for his time and ahead of his time as a character. And I just think people went, wow, he's fun to watch, but I ain't buying, I ain't buying the threat. Did you, you know, you said earlier that you, you got to meet Kurt in the AWA, but you, you certainly knew of him before that. When you guys sort of go your separate ways and he leaves the AWA and you're still hanging around, do you keep in touch with him or the family at all? No, I wasn't close enough to, you know, we, we didn't have each other's phone numbers or anything like that. So my only interactions with Kurt and they were very brief, you know, cause he wasn't in the AWA very long after I got there, um, maybe six months or so. And when I saw him, it was uh, on days where we did edit market promos that everybody at over ad free shows knows all about because of your conversations with Conrad and, and uh, Mr. Crockett. So yeah, when we would do those on Tuesday mornings, I think every other month or once a month, uh, you know, Kurt would, along with everybody else would be in to, to do those. So I would have an opportunity to interact with the mayor a little bit here and there, but um, never got to know him well enough to, you know, exchange phone numbers. Let's talk a little bit about when it starts to go South for Kurt, you know, he has this great push in 1990, uh, and he's working with Hulk Hogan and the ultimate warrior. Uh, unfortunately his undefeated streak goes down at the hands of Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake at WrestleMania. Uh, that's hideous. That I, is just okay. I'll never forgive Bruce for that ever. Uh, anyway, Mr. Perfect would hurt his back in June of 91 while he's the intercontinental champion. He actually suffered a broken tailbone along with a bulging disc in his lower back. And it was all from running full floor, full force into the turnbuckle on an Irish whip. And man, he used to just pound those turnbuckles and he hit it wrong once and bam, he was in a bad way, but he's still the intercontinental champ. And back then you got to get the match in the ring. You got to get the belt off. You got to do the honors. So he comes back and has an incredible match with Bret Hart at SummerSlam 91. It's a classic SummerSlam match, just a classic intercontinental match. One of my all-time favorites between either of those guys. And it was really Brett's sort of coming out party. They had his parents in the crowd there in Madison square garden and just knowing the pain and suffering that Kurt was going through. It really is amazing that he was able to pull off such a special match. And now with the context of knowing how bad he was hurting, I want everybody to go back and watch that one again, because it was something else. And I think. That SummerSlam is up on Peacock, or at least I hear it is. You know what? I'm going to go back and watch that. I, I was thinking as you were talking, you know, young Bret Hart, even though, you know, Kurt was injured, uh, you know, a young Bret Hart and 50% of Kurt Hennig would be a hell of a match to watch. I, I'm going to go back and check it out. It's funny that we're talking about this too, because just the other day, uh, Jim Cornette was talking about this on his podcast and he mentioned that he was visiting Bobby Eaton. He went over to Bobby's house. And Bobby said, Jimmy, you got to see this and put in the VHS of that match because Bobby Eaton was just blown away. So if it impresses Bobby Eaton, by God, you you'll be impressed too. go check it out. By the way, we should mention at this point, there is a concern. Will Kurt ever wrestle again? And this is certainly the era where guys were getting insurance through Lloyd's of London. Eric, we've probably got some listeners who don't know what the hell we're talking about. Can you explain the Lloyd's of London policy from a wrestler standpoint and, and how big of a deal that was? Yeah, I never had a Lloyd's of London policy, but I was, um, I, I had to deal with the fallout from a few, few of the guys that did, um, essentially what a Lloyd's of London policy was, you know, your typical insurance companies, blue cross, blue shield, or whoever you get your insurance from, uh, they didn't want to 
insure professional wrestlers because of the high risk nature of, of their industry. So in order to get any insurance at all, you had to go to the Lloyd's of London. Now Lloyd's of London famously, and I don't know a lot about Lloyd's of London, but what the little pieces that I do remember is that Lloyd's of London would be the insurance company, for example, that Mariah Carey would go to, to have her vocal cords insured. Yes, people do that. Um, if you were a flute player, you could go to Lloyd's of London and get your fingers and your lips insured. So you paid a fortune for said insurance, but you could get it. And once wrestlers found out, because Lloyd's of London wasn't really aware of the wrestling industry as much as a lot of the more mainstream insurance companies were. So Lloyd's of London, you know, started writing big insurance policies for policies for an affordable amount of money for professional wrestlers. And you can imagine what happened. As <laughs> soon as somebody figured out, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean if I can get my doctor to say that my back is blown out and I can never wrestle again, I can get a $500,000 check, a $2 million check because of my insurance policy? Okay, I'm going to do that. And it wasn't long before that. And I'm not saying every one of them was illegitimate. Some of them were very legitimate. Kurt's issues were very legitimate. I certainly do not want anybody to misunderstand that. However, there was a lot of abuse as well, <laughs> as one could imagine. Uh, not by Kurt, but by many others. And it wasn't long before Lloyds of London said, okay, no more. No more of that. Pull in a plug. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, some of it was so bullshit that they had, I mean, I think road warrior animal, according to the rumor and innuendo, uh, he was able to convince Lloyd's of London that there's no way his back could ever live up to a singles match, but he could certainly work tag matches with his bad back yep, and, and they bought could. it. Yep. They, they did. They did. And I'm not, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be very careful about what I say here. Because I sometimes I joke around and I say things and I don't distinguish between when I'm when I'm trying to be a little funny, right? And get ready for the word jocular, um, or when I'm actually trying to you know convey what I think is fact. So I'm not going to suggest that what I'm about to say is fact. That in fact, the whole hey, I know how to make money off Lloyd's of London. Those 12 people that were mentioned, many of those may have been a part of those conversations. I'm not so, I'm not, not convinced that the whole idea of taking advantage of Lloyd's of London didn't somehow start in Minnesota at, at a bar called Tootsie's in North Minneapolis. <laughs> I'm saying <laughs> it's something, man. It's something. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by fight camp. Fight Camp is bringing the boxing gym right to your home. It's a mix of cardio and conditioning. You're going to get a full body workout. Have you ever wanted to learn how to box or kickbox from real fighters? Maybe you just want to continue that martial arts journey that you started as a kid. We can pick up where you left off from home and you can even get your kids involved in a lifetime of a fitness journey with you because you're constantly learning with Fight Camp. And if you ever felt like you wanted to punch something, let me tell you, fight camp is for you. It's made for beginners to experienced boxers and anywhere in between. You can box from home with new content being released weekly. And it starts at easy and gets all the way to advanced. 
so there's something for everybody. It comes with all the gear you need, all in this same box, so you can box at home. We're talking a freestanding punching bag, boxing gloves, quick hand wraps, and a unique punch tracking sensor that'll show you real-time progress and stats on any iOS device. How cool is that? I mentioned a moment ago, this is great for kids too, because there's no heavy weights or spinning wheels. We also want to mention the Fight Camp app comes with over 600 workouts and tutorials. They release 12 new boxing and kickboxing workouts every week. The really cool thing about this to me is that Fight Camp is using new technology to track every punch you throw. It's going to measure your speed, your volume, and your output so you can see your progress, push yourself, and compete on a community leaderboard. You can learn from six highly qualified trainers, all with real fight experience, ranging from a pro MMA fighter to a mother of two to a kickboxing champion. By the way, we mentioned that Fight Camp community. Join it right now. When you connect with that Fight Camp community on Facebook, and there's more than 10,000 members there, you can share your successes and talk through hardships with others online. A community is what it's all about. Fight Camp is even offering financing so you can pay over 24 months and get your new gym now. And at Fight Camp, they offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. That's joinfightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. That's right. Give Fight Camp a try, and within 30 days, if you don't love it, send it back and get a refund. Fight Camp is the new way to work out at home. Make a change and join the community that teaches you the art of boxing while following the most intense workouts that are as quick as just 15 minutes. To get free shipping on Fight Camp, go to joinfightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. That's joinfightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on. Let's talk about how he does take the payout. He comes back as a manager for Ric Flair. Uh, eventually he is, uh, his number is called when, uh, the ultimate warrior gets himself in a little bit of trouble. He's no longer going to be present at survivor series, 1992, and they need someone. And, uh, I think an arrangement is made where Kurt doesn't have to pay back all that money himself. He has a little help from Stanford, Connecticut, and he's back in the ring. Fast forward a few months and Kurt beats Ric Flair in a loser leaves town match. And now Rick is back in WCW are you watching wrestling and keeping up with all that? I mean, I know you're with WCW at the time. Are you keeping up with the WWF stuff at all? A little bit, not religiously. You know, it, it, it certainly didn't impact my job on a day-to-day basis. It wasn't, you know, I was just an announcer and I just took the information it gave me and did it as best I could. And I wasn't involved in the business side of the business. So I really wasn't watching it much. I would drop in, don't get me wrong, but I didn't like tune in every single night or at every opportunity. I tended to watch their syndicated shows. They mean in WWE. I tended to watch their syndicated shows a little more uh, than anything on cable. Um, And I didn't really drop in on a lot of the NBC special stuff, but the syndicated stuff I would drop in on the weekends just to check it out a little bit, but I didn't follow it closely. There was talk that, Hulk Hogan, uh, might've liked the idea, or maybe somebody in WCW might've liked the idea of having a Rick Rude, Kurt Henning tag team on the heel side of things in WCW, uh, sometime in 94. Do you remember there being conversations about trying to lure Kurt over, or would that have been, you know, guys like Terry Taylor or Kevin Sullivan trying to figure out 
if that was possible. No, it wouldn't have been Terry Taylor or Kevin Sullivan. You know, with with Kurt, that would have you know. I, and I don't, I don't. You know, Hulk wasn't for the most part, and there were some exceptions, but Hulk wasn't you know in a in the habit of advocating for anybody. Now he did, you know, Jimmy Hart and a couple, you know, Brutus, obviously. And, you know, there are a few other talents, you know, his real life friends, real life friends and people that he's worked with in the past um, that he felt comfortable with that he, he would, you know, try to find a job for he, you know, he did. And they were talented individuals, most of them, many of them, not all of them uh, that deserve that opportunity. But he wasn't, you know, as far as outside of Hulk's general kind of proximity of people that he had worked with in the past, um, he, he didn't come to me often and suggest, you know, trying to bring in names. Uh, it, I, I would not be surprised just because of the timing and who was doing what when if the opportunity to bring in Kurt probably didn't come originally from Rick. Mm. I don't know that it did, but. Kurt was, you know, Rick and I were working pretty close together. Rick at one point was booking somewhere, I think in 94. Yeah. Um, obviously Rick had tremendous relationship with Kurt. So I would bet it was Rick who suggested that if anybody did more than Hulk. Talk to me a little bit about when it really does happen. 96. It looks like Kurt's going to make a full-time comeback. It looks like they're setting him up to do something with Hunter Hearst Helmsley. This is of course, before he's triple H, uh, he's still the blue blood at this point. And he's in a bit of in the middle of a feud with Mark Marrow and Mr. Perfect has sort of been playing both sides against the middle. And then this is the report from the observer. It appears that Kurt may have been the latest wrestler to switch affiliations from the WWF to WCW. Kurt met with Eric Bischoff late last week and the two sides apparently reached a verbal agreement on a deal where Henning would return as an active wrestler. However, Titan sports is contesting the agreement, claiming an illegal letter from McDivitt to WCW, that WCW was interfering in Titans contracts and the letter Titan was under the assumption that Henning would make a surprise appearance at the November 11th nitro and warn WCW. It would take legal action. If that was the case in any event, Kurt was not able to use the name, Mr. Perfect, since that's a WWF creation. And WCW was believed to not be planning on using Henning so quickly due to his WWF contract, which is expected to have a starting date with WCW in early February. McDevitt declined to state how long Henning was under contract, just that the contract was valid and there was no provision in it to give 90 days notice at this time. How does this whole meeting come to be in 96? Do you recall? Does he call you? Do you call him? How does that get put together? I'd only be guessing Conrad. Yeah. I don't remember by that time, you know, obviously Kurt and I had a pretty, you know, direct relationship. So I, I would imagine Kurt called Janie angle. Janie set up a call between Kurt and me. That would be my best guess. And that's ultimately when you get together with him and his dad, right? Yep. Take us through that meeting. Do they come into your office in Atlanta? Do you go downstairs and meet them at Jock and Jill's? What's that look like at the height of the no, Monday they, Night Wars? They came up. There was there was a point, you know, where I had, <clears throat> well, I had the office. It was, it was Jim Hurd's office the day that Jim Hurd hired me, and then it was Kip Fry's office, and then it was uh, Bill Watts's office, and then it was my office. And it was a cool office because it had a big balcony that you know it was a 14th or 15th floor, I can't remember which, of the CNN Center. 
and uh, looked out over the city of Atlanta, beautiful skyline. I had a nice little patio, you know, so I could sit out there and have a nice conference room right next to my office. And uh, yeah, it was, it was in that office. Again, this was before we moved to that um, other location, the log cabin location. I think it was on log cabin drive. We weren't in a log cabin, but um, a log cabin would have been preferable. (laughs) So that meeting, you said, you know, he wanted to bring Larry along with him um, to sort of have him hear what you're saying. What was more important to them at the time? I've always been fascinated by these wrestler negotiations. You know, it feels like uh, Jim Ross pretty routinely on grilling Jr. says Connie and wrestling. It all comes down to the two C's cash and creative. What were the chief concerns for the Hennings? Do you recall? It wasn't, it wasn't creative. Um, I honestly, and I remember having this impression again, because of a indirect relationship and with, with Larry, the ax and a little bit more of a relationship with Kurt at that point. Um, I think Larry was really just wanting to, it was a bullshit test. He wanted to, I think Larry wanted to read the room. Yeah. You know, obviously he wanted for his son probably to have the best, not only the best deal on paper, but a deal that he believed was real. Yes. No smoke and mirrors. And again, you go back at the time, Vince wasn't offering guarantees. WCW was. So there was the, you know, if you're on Kurt's side of that equation and Larry's at this point, you've got to kind of balance what maybe could be if everybody's telling the truth over here, because there's no guarantee because it's all based on upside and promise, wink, wink. I'm going to give you a big push. Well, that, yep. That takes a lot of faith, right. And confidence to, to sign off on that When over here, you have no matter what happens creatively, whether we do a good job creatively or not, it's not going to hurt you financially. Right now, that potential upside that the WWF had to present was a much prettier picture than the guarantee, perhaps. But I think Larry wanted the guarantee. I right. think Larry, not because he didn't trust Vince McMahon, although I think that probably was you know, because the nature of wrestlers are to not trust the promoter. That's inherent. When you sit down with a promoter you like, you know, you can't trust them back in the day. Right. So I'm sure there was a little bit of that inherent, just kind of, you know, watch your back kind of thing going on with regard to WWF and with WCW. I think, you know, Larry just, and Kurt just wanted to make sure my offer was real, but it got creative. Didn't come up. So it's all about cash and dates. Hey, we want you for this. Cash and dates. Yeah. Cash and dates. And look, you know, Kurt, had a history of injuries. So dates were kind of a big damn deal. Again, go back to WWF, you know, 300 dates a year, double shots on weekends, you know, living in a plane, living in a car, living in a bus, whatever, you know, you're on the road 300 days a year, banging your body, you know, double shots on weekends and every night. If you're, you know, if you're 25 and injury free, that's one thing. But if you're into your thirties, mid thirties or so, and you're carrying around knee injuries and back injuries schedule becomes just as important as money. I know this sounds silly, but these days, uh, or I guess for the last decade or maybe a little more first class airfare has been a hot button topic. Was that something that was being discussed in 96? 
I'm sure. Well, of course, with certain talent, you know, I never had a problem with that. Now we couldn't afford to fly everybody first class. Right. So, you know, you have to make some exceptions. Um, but for the most part, you know, guys like, you know, a Ric Flair and a Hulk Hogan and, you know, road warriors when they were with us, um, Roddy Piper, guys of that status, Randy Savage, of course, all those guys. Um, yeah, that's first class. It was written into their agreements. A lot of the other talent, it wasn't. They hadn't gotten to that level of their careers yet where they could negotiate for that kind of thing. But there were some who didn't have it in their contracts that I still flew first class anyway because they were so freaking big. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's not possible. Yeah, and and it was discretionary on my part, but it was also kind of common sense. Right. You know, if if a guy's, you know, six foot five and 300 pounds, uh, guess where he's not going to sit? In the middle seat. I don't seat. care if he's out of the power plant. You yeah. can't do that. Yeah. It's, it's so, yeah, there were, there were issues. I don't remember it coming up in Kurtz. It probably did. I just don't remember it being a point. Just in my head with, with his back issue, it feels like, you know, that would have been something he would have cared about. All right. By now, you know that Eric Bischoff loves his dog, Nikki. We see evidence of that all over his Instagram. And I know you love your dog too, but we might be able to do a little better for our dogs than we have been. I'm excited to tell you about solid gold. Did you know that up to 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies? Solid Gold is passionate about gut health because a healthy digestive system positively impacts the immune system and overall wellness of pets. And I'll be honest, I didn't really understand all of that until I realized my dogs have allergies. And now that I know that, dude, it is solid gold through and through. These are much happier dogs. I can personally attest to that. Solid Gold was the first holistic pet food company in America. Started back in 74 by Sissy McGill, who's a pioneer and a trailblazer. Because back then, man, pet food was dominated by dudes. She came in and said, I'm breaking up that racket, baby. I'm a disruptor, and I'm going to create a natural pet food before it was cool. That's exactly what she did. Her inspiration was that European Great Danes live longer than American Great Danes. What's up with that? Well, it turns out that she was able to create something pretty special. Hundenflocken, which is dog flakes in German. They've now provided high-quality nutrition and digestive health for over 20 generations of dogs. Solid Gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their founding belief that high-quality food is the best way to impact our pets' mind, body, and spirit. Now, for over 45 years, Solid Gold has revolutionized the holistic pet food category They have a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including healthy whole grain and grain-free options, wet food, supplements like sea meal, and 100% human-grade bone broth for dogs. Solid Gold Foods are different because they cleanse the digestive system with whole superfoods, balance with living probiotics, and fuel with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids, supporting gut health and nourishing your pet inside and out. Right now, to save 30% on Solid Gold products, just go to solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. That's solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks to save 30% on select Solid Gold products. Remember, solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Let's talk about your demeanor in that era. You've, uh, you've come out and said, boy, in hindsight, I might've done some of that stuff differently. 
you know, when you can be honest here, how much of your motivation was, Hey, we're going to get a great talent like Kurt. If you know, he's really been out of the ring for a while. He's not exactly at his physical peak or his prime, if you will, but he is right in the middle of a cool WWE storyline. I mean, is that a feather in your cap to, to sign a talent and just, you know, let that storyline on the other channel, just go cold. Does that interest you at all? Tell the truth. Not even, I don't, I don't think I was even aware of it. Okay. I I really wasn't again. You, you gotta try to imagine what it was like to be me at that moment. Um, here's a guy sitting across from me that I was a massive fan of in Minnesota, right? Before I ever got into the wrestling business and having watched his career, you know, the trajectory of his career and how well he was doing, how he ended up in WWF and all the things we've already just talked about. All I knew, I knew that, you know, we talked about his injury. We, it was not a secret. It was public information. So it's not like, you know, nobody knew about it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. We talked about it and where he was at and, you know, what he thought he could do and what he couldn't do and whether he was cleared technically or not, or whether there was a Lloyd's in London, you know, issue to, that I needed to be aware of. So all that conversation happened. Right. Um, and so I knew he wasn't a hundred percent, but I knew I wasn't too concerned about that because Kurt Henning could talk his way into more money than a lot of guys can having the greatest matches of their careers. Right. He's a great talker. He's a great character. And I knew why we could make money with that. I knew that would be a big contribution to the show to have somebody that was that capable of a performer as a whole. Uh, even if his ring work was only 50% of what it once was when he was at his peak, it didn't matter to me. Do you remember having conversations with Kurt about, Hey, uh, why are we here? What's your motivation to be here? Was he expressing frustrations with working for Vince or was he just legitimately seeing what else was available? I never asked that question. And, <clears throat> and, it, and it's easy to understand why one would think that it would, you know, be a great door opener in a negotiation. But here's, I learned early on, especially when I got, you know, to the point where I was negotiating contracts, you know, after I was made executive producer and when I started really running the company is when I first started getting involved in negotiating contracts. And we're talking about 95 now, 96 is when I really got into it full time. Um, I learned early on and everybody's going to bury the company that you're, you know, competing with. So if Kurt's going to come in and sit down and talk to me or anybody else, by the way, anybody else, if they're coming over from WWF and have a conversation with me, what do you think they're going to do? Sure. What do you think they think I want to hear all the dirt They're wrong? Yeah, they're wrong. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Cause number one, I just don't believe it. I believe you're saying it because you want to have a connection with me and you know, you think or assume that that's really important to me and it's yeah. not, yeah. or it was, I should say I'm going in and out of past and present tense here at that time. It just, I didn't give a shit. It just wasn't on my radar, had nothing to do with me. The only thing I was focused on is, is this a contribution to the show? Can the show be better with this talent on the roster? If the answer is yes, I don't give a fuck about the rest of it. I really don't. So never had those conversations. And when they would start on the other end, I would change that conversation. Cause I, here's the crappy thing. Man, I don't say Kurt did this. I don't, I'm sure he did to a degree, but I just don't remember it. It didn't stand out, 
But every time that happened to me, I would go, okay, well, you're doing that to the guy that you're working for now. You're probably going to do that to me when you leave here. So it's just like, I don't want to have these conversations. Let's talk a little bit about what's in the observer. There must've been major un- underlying heat between Kurt and Vince for Kurt to not only jump, but also burn McMahon and the WWF on two consecutive weekends on the way out the door. The story going around is that Kurt had no interest in returning to the ring as he was a very short time away from a lifetime disability settlement in his Lloyd's of London policy, which would have repaid him a reported $300,000 lump sum. However, something happened, which Kurt blamed Vince for, which led to Lloyd's not being able to pay him the lump sum, which without the lump sum probably lessened Kurt's reasons for not wanting to return to the ring. Do you recall that being a wrinkle that was discussed at all that, you know, maybe he was upset with something that WWF did and now it's going to affect his, uh, Lloyd's of London payday. I'm not. And, and again, probably for the same reason I just discussed a few moments ago, that kind of, you know, in one ear out the conversation other. is just something I need. I want to know. I don't want to, I don't want to have it. Yeah. I just don't. Let's keep it moving here. Um, it makes the observer, I guess, two months later. Uh, Henning was contemplating a huge lump sum settlement with Lloyd's of London, which was either 150 grand or 300 grand to get the settlement. He'd have to basically sign a deal saying he's permanently disabled and could never wrestle again. Since the WWF figured he might wrestle. And since he was under a disability deal with Lloyd's, the company's legal department sent a memo to Lloyd's to try to reach a settlement regarding the deal. At that point, Lloyd's nixed the deal of paying Henning the lump sum for permanent disability because they believed he was thinking about returning to the ring. So therefore he wasn't actually permanently disabled. Henning was furious thinking the WWF had double crossed him, which led to him contacting WCW and setting up a meeting there as revenge. After no showing the weekend on November 9th, he and McMahon talked things out and McMahon offered him a five-year wrestling contract with a $300,000 per year downside guarantee, which Kurt verbally agreed to. And McMahon felt everything was cool since Kurt was guaranteed far more money in the contract than whatever he was going to make in that Lloyd settlement. While we don't know the WCW figure, apparently Bischoff's offer for a three-year deal was higher. So Kurt went with WCW without telling McMahon and no showed an autograph session, the hall of fame dinner, the survivor series and superstars voiceovers. The WWF is claiming Kurt has now breached his contract, which expires in may by no showing the last three weeks. A lot to unpack there, uh, but it does feel like Kurt maybe burned a bridge on the way out. And, uh, you know, I know you don't necessarily recall all the details of that conversation, but how do you feel about Dave's report here? Could this be accurate? I think it could be knowing, having gotten to know Kurt and Larry during this process. They were both, they were headstrong. Larry, the ax Henning was very headstrong. You know, some of the issues between Larry and Vern Gagne, although I was never in the midst of them, I never heard them directly. Um, the, the stories about the battles that those two would have when it came to creative issues <clears throat> was legendary, uh, at least in the hallowed halls of the AWA over on Highway 12 in Golden Valley. Um and, you know, Vern was headstrong. He was stubborn. And, and so was Larry, as I learned through others who dealt with him. And I think 
I got to know, as I got to know Kurt, I saw that same characteristic in Kurt, you know, uh, once I think, I think it's, I'd say once Kurt made up, if he, if you, if he felt like you cheated him or you weren't a hundred percent honest with him, um, he'd probably immediately go to the darkest place, which is, you know, it wasn't just bad communication or the right hand, not knowing what the left hand was doing. I'm would not be surprised if Kurt went right to, they fucked me. Maybe it wasn't the intention could have been the outcome, but I, don't know that that was the intention, but I can also see how Kurt and Larry would just immediately jump to their conclusion again, because of the aforementioned in just inherent distrust of any promoter. So you've got a real, you got a, you got a perfect situation for a car crash right there. You've got a promoter who the talent just inherently doesn't trust. It's in their genetic, it's in their DNA. They're not going to trust you if you're a promoter. And now you've got, an insurance company and attorneys and people getting involved in other people's business. And boom, when the deal goes up, since you inherently don't trust a promoter, what are you most likely going to do? You're going to go to the, he fucked me card and I can see it. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about where we are. Um, the whole story of the timeline, this is going to be November, but it can't show up until May. Um, do you remember there being a discussion about, we can't start you right now, but we can then, and are you putting him on the paywall right then, even if he can't technically appear or do you remember any of that timeline? Yeah, I don't remember the timeline. I, it, I, it, I'm not saying it didn't happen because I don't remember, but it, it, I would think if there was an issue about when we could have started Kurt, I, I would be one that I would remember because it would have been illegal discussion that I would have had with Nick Lambros and we would have had to kind of review contracts together. So I think I would remember it, but possibly not, or possibly it was something that Nick Lambros handled because Nick handled all of the, the, the details of contracts, not me. Um, I was money dates and airfare. <laughs> and after that, it was up to Nick. So perhaps it was something that was easily resolved. I, I don't, I don't know. Let's, uh, let's recap something from late March 97. That's in the observer. The latest chapter in the Henning saga started at the cauliflower alley club banquet in studio city, California on March 15th and ended, or at least appears to have ended on March 24th with nitro opening with the appearance of Larry Henning in the front row in Duluth at the CAC, Larry introduced his son who was being awarded as a future WWF champion. And the two talked highly about Vince McMahon. The reports we received is that Henning, whose Titan contract expires in a few weeks and was expected to join WCW immediately as a full-time wrestler at that point was in Titan towers on March 18th. According to the WWF sources, Henning was expected to make a surprise appearance at WrestleMania, largely to return the Lex Luger favor from the original nitro. When Bischoff got worried about the cauliflower alley banquet and the Titan rumors, he contacted Henning, which I believe was on March 21st. Uh, who told him something to the effect of it just being him screwing with McMahon, which Kurt Henning has probably done now as much, if not more than any other wrestler ever alive. Uh, of course, nobody was sure being, this is pro wrestling. And there were those in WCW who worried until mania ended that he still might make a surprise appearance as he is technically under contract to Titan, but WCW wanted to put it back in Titan's face by opening nitro with Kurt Henning. However, due to the contract, they're unable to do so. 
So they figured the next best thing was putting Larry there to open the show and make it clear that Kurt was on the way to their side. Do you remember this back and forth and the rumor that he was in Titan towers? Nope. In the spirit of positivity, I'm not going to say that it didn't happen because it could have, and I just wasn't aware of it or didn't care. Uh, but I don't remember any of that. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late to find yourself at a railway crossing, waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you may feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't ever to the naked eye trains often appear to be further away and moving slower than they are. And they can't stop quickly. And even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop over a mile to stop by that time. It's too late. And the result is a potential deadly crash. The point is you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop quickly. And even if it sees you, it ends in disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way and you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't paid for by NHTSA. Let's, uh, let's keep it going here. How involved was Kurt in the creative on his debut? Is this something you talk about ahead of time or do you just do it day of and Hey, here's what they wrote down or Hey, what are you thinking? Just talk me through the process of uh, how you debut a character like his. I wouldn't have been booking it. Well, what, what was, what year was it? 1997, 97 by 97. I would have been involved. Um, deeply involved. I just, I don't remember how it went down with Kurt. Of course, Kurt would have had input. Of course he would have. Um, And of course we would have talked about it prior, but I can't honestly tell you what the details of those conversations were. I just, I I really can't. Kevin, Kevin Sullivan would have been right there in the middle of that uh, conversation as well, or probably would have taken the lead on it, but I would have been involved in, 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 in aware of it. I just don't remember what it was. Let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, the in-ring debut. It's a bash at the beach. It's Scott Hall and Randy Savage beating DDP and Kurt Henning in nine minutes and 35 seconds. Meltzer would say Henning as the mystery partner left the match flat as the fans didn't care. He looked slow and bloated in the ring to make things worse. Finish saw Kurt apparently supposed to take a bump backwards over the ropes when Paige was accidentally pulling the rope down, but that didn't actually materialize. Henning never, never went over the top. And then he shoved page and walked out in the ring. Hall gave him the outsider's edge and Savage dropped the elbow on page for the pin half a star. It's not quite the, uh, the big bang that we were hoping for with a Kurt debut. What do you remember about this? Uh, generally being a little disappointed, you know, and Kurt wasn't, you know, at the top of his key, Kurt was, you know, the back issues were related to the weight issues. Um, so disappointed, not going to lie, but not angry, you know, just, okay. We've got to figure out a way to improve this situation and, or work around it one way or the other. Let's draw some parallels to the current topic, you know, or our current wrestling scene, if you will, you and I recently talked about the way AEW debuted Christian and they did the same thing you did here with Kurt. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Who will it be? And so on AEW, people are saying, oh, it's CM Punk or it's John Cena or it's Brock Lesnar. Of course, it was none of those. It was Christian who, 
if they hadn't hyped it as a mystery and he just showed up, would have owned the internet. And you and I talked about that. Well, here fans really wanted this to be sting, right? Where DDP is, is waving that WCW flag and he's taking on the NWO and we're not going to tell you who the tag partner is. You got to tune in to see it's a mystery. Well, holy shit. We hope it's sting. And then it's Mr. Perfect and Hey, he's cool. We like him too, but we kind of wanted sting, right? It's kind of how many times have you heard me say, I've learned more from my, my mistakes than I have my success. Of course, this is a perfect example. And it's a, it's a perfect crystal clear example of why you and I pretty much agreed, but we talked about the Christian promotion, right? I've, I fucked that up. I made the mistake with Kurt. I, I, when I have an opinion, it's often more often than not based on a mistake that I've made more, more so than, you know, a huge success I've had. And yeah, you're absolutely right. That parallel is right on the money. Be careful about manage expectations. It did not occur to me and it should have my bad. Didn't occur to me that while we're, you know, teasing a big surprise, the audience is going to go to what would be creatively the logical choice for the audience because Sting was so freaking hot and WCW was getting its ass kicked and everybody looked at Sting as being, other than Ric Flair, the face of the company. So it would have been a logical conclusion that a clear thinking individual with experience, which I didn't have at the time, would have said, no, we better not do that because the, the energy might not go the direction we wanted to. It may go in another direction, which is exactly what happened to Sting and to Christian. Same mistake, two different eras, same mistake. Chat me up about DDP. Um, it's been written over the years that these guys had quote unquote heat with each other, Kurt Henning and diamond Dallas page. And I always wondered, is it because of this particular match where they had something scripted? It doesn't go according to plan, or is there more to it than that? Did DDP blow up at him? We've also heard that Kurt, who we know has a reputation for being one of the biggest rivers in the history of wrestling would always call Dallas Mark because of pages tendency to script out his matches page after page, move by move ahead of time. And of course, that's not the type of business that Kurt grew up in. And he would very publicly amongst other talent refer to diamond Dallas page as a Mark and call him Mark. And it just feels like these guys were oil and water. You're great friends with DDP. You were friendly with Kurt. Did you ever see any of this behavior? I saw the frustration, I think on DDP. And again, context is king here on 83 weeks. We're enlightening the audience isn't a job. It's a calling, but with DDP, here's, I mean, you, you said, was it oil and water kind of, but not really part of it was Kurt's personality. I mean, DDP admired the hell out of Kurt. How could you he not really, really liked and respected Kurt, but Kurt loved to rib people 24 <laughs> seven and Paige, I love you, but sometimes back then you were pretty easy to pick on. Yeah. You're a quirky dude. And 
you know, with a guy like Kurt and sees that opening to have fun <clears throat> at your expense, make everybody else chuckle at your expense. That Kurt was a master at that. If he would have been a stand-up comedian, he would have been the Bill Burr of professional wrestling stand-up comedians. You know, he he just he was so quick-witted and so good at it that he couldn't help himself because it was fun. Did Maybe you, hard for a guy like Paige or anybody else that would have been a target. And then you got Paige, who was trying so desperately to get people to take him seriously because yeah. he was the manager. He was too old to start wrestling. You know, who starts a wrestling career in their late 30s or whatever it was? You know, so Paige is trying desperately to get a, approval and, 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 and acceptance and credibility. And you've got Kurt Henning over here having a field day with you, you know, keeping a locker room chocolate. So I could see if there was tension, why, but it wasn't genuine on Paige's part. He genuinely respected Kurt Angle, or excuse me, Kurt Henning. Well, probably Kurt Angle too. Hey, um, oh yeah, but it did that for a different reason. Let's talk about, you know, Kurt as a river for a minute. You said, you know, if you were easy to an easy target, he would jump on it. Did you ever see him take it too far? Where you felt like, hey, as the leader of this thing, this thing's about to get ugly. I need to go put a bug in his ear that we need to turn it back a little bit. No, because those things didn't happen in front of me. Okay. You know, I, I was the president of the company. I wasn't putting on my boots in the locker room or on the plane with the, with the talent or on a bus, you know, or on tour. So, you know, usually, you know, the ribs and the types of things that would get out of hand and they did, and I would hear about them, but they never happened in front of me. Um, and I look for better or worse, arguably, you know, one could say worse, but I think in the context of the time, certainly not today's ultra corporate corporate environment and politically correct environment that we all have to, you know, work in and, and, and live in, uh, things were different, you know, and, and I'm sure they were different in WWE at that time but they were probably even more different in WCW because I think there was less, um, there was less management of talent at that time. And um, so, yeah, I'm sure it happened, but it didn't happen in front of me. I know it happened because I'd hear about it. And sometimes it would make me laugh. And I had to be careful and laugh to myself so that nobody saw me laughing because sometimes I was laughing at the person that it happened to. Can't help it. I love a good rib too, as long as it doesn't happen to me. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about his character here in WCW. It feels like Kurt's positioned almost as a tweener. He's going to team with Ric Flair at clash of the champions to take on six and Conan. So that makes it feel like, okay, he's a baby face. He's teaming with Rick. He's taking on two guys from the NWO, but then at road wild, he's going one-on-one -on -one with the super over white meat, baby face diamond Dallas page. How do you reconcile that? Is this a shades of gray type situation? I think, I mean, it certainly was, but not intentionally. I think this falls into the just no plan is a bad plan category. It's really what it was. I can't sugarcoat it any, any more different than that. You know, it didn't from a creative standpoint, what you just laid out, you don't take a guy, he's a baby face one week and he's a heel the next. Yeah. That was bad booking. Well, uh, let's talk about bad booking because they have a below average match at road wild talking about DDP and Kurt, and maybe it's because they didn't get along behind the scenes, but 
Kerr gets a win. And what's kind of weird is DDP is coming off that red hot, red hot feud with Randy Savage. And it feels like, you know, Kurt's lost a step. He's not the old Mr. Perfect character. We've really built up DDP and now we're going to have Kurt beat him. And maybe that's a testament to how over DDP was with the crowd. Maybe he can help Kurt, but it does feel like, I don't know, man, maybe, maybe this one was better not being put out there. This one was better not being put out there for no other reason than just the confusing character of Kurt Henning at the time. I mean, that right there would have been a reason right there not to do it. I think the, the chemistry could have been an issue. I'm like, eh. Could have been difficult to, to get what you needed out of those guys, but neither one of them was going to, you know, shortchange the other and thereby shortchange the match. Could have easily been, you know, Kurt just not physically being able to do a lot of the things that we all wanted him and expected him to do or what he wanted to do and expected to do. And the end result is a poorly booked match from a creative perspective and one that just didn't have the physical dialogue or execution because Kurt, frankly, wasn't really capable of doing it. Chat me up about, and everybody knows where we're going. Maybe the most memorable thing Kurt ever did in WCW besides some singing, which we'll get to shortly, the whole, my spot promo with Arn Anderson, you know, Arn has talked about you in glowing terms that you let him go out there and just speak from the heart that night. But the storyline is he's going to give his spot to Kerr Henning. Did you already know before they ever get in the ring? Hey, here's the direction we're going for this. Or does someone call and give you this great idea later? Because it, it is an interesting story. It feels like it's for better or worse sort of the swan song for the four horsemen. I know we're going to try to restart it once later, but this felt like the last major horseman moment besides when flair came back from his feud with you. And then the actual execution of the storyline maybe helped kill the town for WCW because it was knee deep in uh, Winston Salem, North Carolina. That's that's horseman country. Was this always the plan or did someone just give you a great idea? And in this era, Kevin Sullivan knew how to book heat better than anybody. Let's do it. It was the latter. And the fact that it wasn't Winston Salem would have made the idea more appealing to me than if it would have been in Cincinnati, Ohio. Correct. It's heat, baby. Heat is life. <laughs> Death is cold. Heat is life. Savewithconrad.com makes saving money fast and easy. But don't take my word for it. Just ask Derek up in Hermosa Beach, California. He gave us a five-star review and wrote, Larry, Holly, and the team were proactive, prompt, and easy to work with. It was quite easily the most efficient mortgage process I've ever been through, and I'll certainly do business with First Family Mortgage in the future. By the way, Larry is my dad. That's right, Larry Thompson. So when we say first family, we mean it. Your closing documents, those will be prepared by my sister. That's real. This is something that we take great pride in. We want our family to help your family save money, and we make it easy. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. We don't have a credit report fee. We don't have an application fee. Let us run the numbers for you, and if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But if we can save you money, you sign your documents electronically. You don't have to pack up the kids and drive across town. In fact, when it comes time to close your loan, 
we'll send somebody to your house. This is as easy as it gets. If you're in a 30 year loan, if you've got a second mortgage, if you've got credit card debt, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much, but as you may have heard, interest rates are starting to rise. You're costing yourself money with every day you wait. When's the best time to save money right now at savewithconrad.com. NLS number 65084 equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? What are you waiting for? Make it happen for your family with first family at savewithconrad.com. So, so that night, Rick and Arn really think, okay, we're going to be doing something here. He's going to take Arn's spot and we're going to try to dust off the horseman one more time. Do you think Kurt as an old school guy, you know, obviously he grew up, uh, watching, you know, Flair's progression and then, you know, Flair gets up and going in the early eighties after he's broken in, but you know, as Kurt's really getting his career off the ground, Flair's the NWA world champion, probably the last great touring NWA champion. Is he into that idea or does he think, ah, who gives a shit? What's the money in the miles? All I can, you know, I can't tell you what he was thinking. I can just tell you the impression that I got. And, and I think my read on him was fairly accurate, maybe not a hundred percent. You know, it was, I was, I, I, while I wasn't a promoter in, in Kurt's eyes because of the nature of the contract, um, I was still the boss and there's always that little bit of distance when it comes to being a hundred percent honest, you know, with many people who are employed by a boss. Um, but my impression was that Kurt was into it. He really was. I mean, he certainly, you know, had a ton of respect for everybody involved. That was without question. So I think because of the respect, it was a legit thing for Kurt. what do you think of that execution? The, of the way the angle played out, both the promo from Arn, the acceptance from Kurt, the, the turn at the pay-per-view slamming flares head in the door, the next night on nitro Kurt showing up in one of flares robes with the sleeves cut off pleased with the way that all came together. Yeah. Boy, the, yeah. what's up with the pregnant pause there? Well, because, you know, when you ask me these questions, I, I have to take a moment and deal with the context issue for myself. Because you can ask me, you can lay out something like that and say, are you, you know, how do you feel about that? Or how did you feel about that in this case? And I feel two ways about it. I feel a different way about it now than I did then. And I've got to kind of remember what I felt like then and what my frame of reference was then and what the context of the time was then. And to the best of my ability, what I was thinking about 25 years ago. So sometimes it takes me a little longer than others. But in this case, I'm a little more sensitive and it took me a little longer because I do feel two different ways about it now. I, you know, man, I'm... I'm way fucking smarter now than I was 25 years ago, you know, just by osmosis. Um, I got a little smarter and certainly I, the way I look at creative is much different now. Um, and so in many respects, not in all respects, but in, in some respects uh, than it was back then. So sometimes I have to really think about it to answer the question. Well, let's, let's talk about your decision making there for a minute, since you are so much smarter now, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, t- we, we, you know, I sort of said a minute ago, you know, when you do this at, at the pay-per-view fall brawl and you have him turn and slam hair heads 
Flair's head in the cage. Easy for me to say that it really killed the town for WCW. I mean, WCW would not draw nearly the same after this. And normally as a rule of thumb on a pay-per-view, you try to leave them in a good place. And I don't know why that's always been the formula, but you want your heroes to prevail. So maybe they quote unquote, got the heat on the good guys on nitro or thunder, but when it comes time to pay it off, good prevailed. And this did not feel like that. And uh, a lot of the audience in the Carolinas left and didn't come back. But even a moment ago, you said, I liked it better since it was in Winston Salem than say, if it was in Cincinnati In hindsight, would you do that differently? Would you have had the, the show close I mean, the angle? I think would have been great on a nitro or a thunder, but I just feel like maybe the positioning of not necessarily the town it happened in, but the context of this is a pay-per-view. This is the blow off. It sort of left a flat feeling in the Carolinas. Would you disagree with that or no, I would absolutely agree with it, but here here's you know, the nuance of what I was thinking in my approach to a lot of things. Keep in mind, when I walked out of Ted Turner's office with a gun to the back of my head and a note to myself saying, I've got to come up with a, a, a show to compete with Monday Night Raw, the first thing I did was recognize I have to be different. And different worked. By 1997, the premise of the Nitro story, you know, the opening moments of Act One as I'm walking out of Ted's office in an almost petrified state and cut to me sitting in my office making a list of all the ways that I could be different than Monday Night Raw. That, what I learned from that moment when I first started thinking and there, and it was a realization, it was, it wasn't something I read in a book. It wasn't something that somebody whispered to me. I didn't overhear it in a conversation or see it in a lecture. I just came to my own reality, my own conclusion that I, I, I can't be better. I can't be worse. Well, I can be, but I don't want to be. So I have to be different to me. It was just, it was the light bulb of all light bulbs for me. And it worked that, that formula, that approach, that ideology, when it came to creating a television format called nitro, which was completely different inherently because of my light bulb, it was as different as I could make it from Monday night raw. And it really fucking worked. I felt like, and by this time, I had kind of, and I know it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back here, and to a degree I am, but I don't mean it for that reason. But when I really was able to distill what was really a story I read in the Orlando paper um, about the, the uh, in an interview with Dick Ebersaw and the way he was approaching the Winter Olympics that year, or yeah, I think it was the Winter Olympics, um, and I, I was able to read that article and lift elements out of that article that really resonated with me and kind of retrofit them to professional wrestling, which ultimately became this my Sarsa formula, story, anticipation, reality, surprise, and action, was really a ripoff slash derivative, depending on what room you're in, 
um, of what I read Dick Ebersol talk about doing for the Winter Olympics. So between my own belief and, and success in focusing on different as opposed to better, and then combine that with what I was really beginning to feel, get a feel for in 96, more in 97, was the story, anticipation, reality, surprise, action formula. Um, the result of that takes us to Winston-Salem and what we're talking about right now. Because in addition to all of the other things that I tried to do differently than the WWF, which ultimately they copied me, by the way, which is cool as shit. But one of the areas that I saw that I felt like I had to change and be different in is not always ending pay-per-views the same way. Not always ending a pay-per-view, sending the people home happy. And I know that doesn't sound like it makes sense because we all, including myself, recognize that the core solution, the core, if you're going to do 12 pay-per-views, have 10 of them, you know, be or, or nine of them, perhaps, be pay-per-views where everybody goes home happy. But mix it up a little bit so that it doesn't become predictable. So people sitting at home don't know. Maybe every once in a while, you know, you've been telling this great story with a baby face and a heel, and you expect the heel you know, to win because why? Because you've been conditioned to see that you've been conditioned to expect that. And I started to think correctly or incorrectly, you know, debatable, I guess. And in the case of Winston Salem, not debatable because I burned the fucking town to the ground. So there's evidence. We don't have to debate it. There's evidence, but from a broader perspective to the broader national or in some cases, international audience, I felt like, wow, we, we've got to get out of this. It was like, it was such a groove. It was such a predictable groove. Just like Nitro was unpredictable. I wanted to try to mix things up at the pay-per-view level too. Now you can say that was a bad idea or an interesting idea or a good idea. Right. I'm, I'm open to all three. I think it's at least interesting I, I wouldn't argue with bad. And I think if it would have been thought through a little bit better, it might've been a good idea in some cases, but certainly doing it in Winston Salem on that particular night with that particular talent can only go into one idea bucket. And that would be the fuck it bucket. That's a bad <laughs> idea. I don't mean to be uh, silly or, or beat you up. You just fell on your sword here. When did you know? Oh, we, we fucking shit the bed on that. Did you know that night? Or are you thinking no. when you leave the arena, like, yeah, man, that's heat. They're pissed. You know, I, yeah, no, I, I yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. That's kind of the answer. Yeah, no. <laughs> I didn't know what that night. <laughs> just, just say it. Just get it over with. Um, I know I didn't know it that night because the reaction was one that I kind of expected and actually helped design or at least approved of. Uh, so, it was not apparent to me that night. In fact, that, that night I thought, wow, we did the right thing. It took a couple of weeks really for the reality to set in. And that's just, you know, chatter and buzz and um, reactions from people, not in the dirt sheet community, but just fan reactions and internal discussions. And it was clear that there was not a lot of good buzz, not the, it was not the right kind of heat. Let's put it that way. 
And part of it is, uh, you know, I'm, we're positioning Rick as a baby face. Yeah. Has that worked much? No, he should be a heel. That's part of it too. Yeah. People didn't want to see Ric Flair as now that's forget about Winston Salem. Winston Salem has her own relationship with Ric Flair and Arn Anderson and the, you know, the four horsemen and all of that legacy, you know, born out of the NWA territory and, and Crockett promotions. That was real legitimate legacy and real legitimate, you know, equity for those characters. Um, but the bigger issue wasn't the local market and whether we burned that town and we weren't able to go back to Winston-Salem and draw a $75,000 house. That wasn't the issue. The issue was the broader issue with the broader audience who didn't want to see Ric Flair as a babyface. That was a big part of it, too. Now that Kurt is a member of the NWO, he defeats Steve McMichael for the WCW United States title. Uh, Flair would also cost hitting the U.S. title to DDP which gives DDP his win back, uh, but it's sort of dusty finished back to Kurt the next week. And then Rick rude would join the NWO after the Montreal screw job. Do you remember Kurt being involved in bringing rude in at all? No, no, that was Rick rude calling me 15 minutes after Montreal went down that Sunday night. I'm sitting at my house at house with my wife and my kids over at 180 Castle Bar Court, Mableton, Georgia. That's where I used to live. Imagine that. There's a lot of shit I can't remember, but I can remember my my address um, from 25 years ago or more. Uh, no, that was that was Rick. Rick called me. My I, the phone was right next to the couch where I was sitting, and Rick called me and he said, "Man, are you seeing this?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Explain." And he started explaining it to me, and he said, "Man, is there room for me there?" So absolutely. By that point, I was pretty good friends with Rick. He said, if you're free, there's room for you here, brother. Come on down. He was there the next day. Wow. Adfreeshows.com is wrestling nostalgia, podcasts on video, and live interactive experiences. It's also a great way to get to know the voices and characters of your childhood. But it's so much more. The Podfather, Conrad Thompson, has recorded over 25 Ask Conrad episodes where he answers your questions from wrestling to mortgages and everything in between. It's your opportunity to get inside the head of the most powerful man in wrestling, not named McMahon or Khan. Conrad often says we are more than listeners. We are community, even family. Take a listen to the recent interaction between the Podfather and one of our top guys, Antonio. And by the way, Antonio, thanks for all your great questions. I feel like you bring the noise with great questions every single week, and I really appreciate your support. That makes my job a lot easier because sometimes I'll do a bunch of research on a show and I'll have some folks help me do some research on a show. We'll have a blind spot, but guys like you and Rajiv and a wrestling historian, I mean, there's always a handful of you folks who always, I'm like, oh, I know if I see a question from him, it's going to be a good one, and you're one of those guys. Thank you for that. Oh, I appreciate it, man. I definitely do. Thank hey, you, Conrad, day 22 so- sober for Antonio. That's awesome, man. Keep up the good work. Congratulations. That's a big deal. Become part of the family now. Make the decision to become a member of ad-free shows and enjoy Ask Conrad and so many other exclusive shows and events. So sign up today. Join the fastest-growing wrestling community over at adfreeshows.com. 
let's, uh, let's keep it going here. Uh, I do want to mention that, uh, Kurt's going to beat flair at world war three to retain the U S title and what Meltzer gave two and a half stars. Uh, this is the closest we got from, you know, I, I guess a payoff standpoint between the two. Um, why do you think there wasn't a big, it felt like flair versus Kurt could have been a semi main at this level, just based on the heat and the storyline and the tradition. Maybe it would have been the town it was, it was in, uh, that could have helped make it a co-main, but chat me up. It feels like it's just sort of yesterday's news. Was the NWO just so hot that there just wasn't enough brain power to go around to some of the undercard stuff in this era? I don't think it was brain power, Conrad. The NWO was so hot. The audience had shifted. It was at that time. We're talking 25 some odd years ago now, I think, close to it. Um, there was a big shift in the appetite in terms of what the audience wanted to see. And this is going to sound fucking horrible in a way it is, but it's also the truth. The mistake that was made on my part, and as well as others who were with me at the time, was jumping too quickly into this new way of telling stories and wrestling with the NWL and not intentionally, but unwittingly diminishing or not paying as close of attention to matches like this with people like Rick and Kurt, it wasn't intentional. And it wasn't meant to be disrespectful to, to the talent or to the audience, by the way, because the audience was also pissed. You know, we, it, it was kind of like, wow, we've got this new, bright, new, shiny object, and we're making money hand over fist, and we're accomplishing things that nobody ever we thought we'd accomplish. And, uh, it's good. It's good. It's good. And it was, by the way, we were making tenfold more money in WCW with this bright new shiny thing. Right. Then we ever, they, we WCW ever did with the four horsemen or, or Ric Flair or WC or anything else that WCW had ever done up until that moment. Right. And then this is, this is the part where I get myself in trouble. All right. This is the part where as much as Rick and I, you know, we look forward to, to seeing each other. We've been exchanging texts over the last few days. This is a part where doing this podcast could be the end of me or at least some relationships, because I, I am honest and I try to take a certain responsibility sometimes more than I should sometimes not intentionally, but less than I should. But we did, I did. We went bright, new, shiny object. We, Think about this. When I took over WCW, it was a company that was making gross, all money in, everything, including if somebody was selling WCW pencils on the street corner, $25 million a year. Right. The last year, with the, the year that I took over, the previous year, the gross revenues, maximum amount of money that WCW could put in its cash register was $25 million before they started taking out expenses. Once they took out expenses, they were $10 million in the hole. All right. Three years later, they're a $300 million company putting $50 million in the, in, in the, in the kitty. 
So when I say the bright, shiny thing was so much more successful that it kind of sucked all of our energy and focus and attention away, it did. And that was a mistake because not only did certain talent feel left out, Rick, not only did we miss certain opportunities, Rick and Kurt and this story, better ways of framing it, better ways of doing a lot of different things that had nothing to do with the bright, shiny object that was printing money, by the way. So, yeah, we did. It, it did suffer. And the audience, yeah, the talent suffered, WCW, but WCW suffered because the audience got pissed. We neglected a certain segment of the audience. It's kind of, it's the buffet. Yes. It's a buffet analogy. We made these people over here really, really happy, and they tipped great. But we also pissed off a fair chunk of the audience. We didn't even know we were doing it. By the we way, we need to do it, but we did it. Some of that is just based on priority, right? And and it is one of those you got to listen to the cash register when it's going off. And I think going back a few years, it felt like the WWF did that with John Cena. John Cena was important. Everything else was just sort of there. So it's marquee. We're going to spend a lot of time, effort, and energy on that. Uh, I think the the line we would hear reported from private meetings with Vince is. That's who's feeding us. Damn it. Uh, the idea being, we've got to make sure Cena is protected. He's our meal ticket, so to speak. And some of the undercard storylines, you know, sometimes there's no fucking rhyme or reason for them. They're just there. And they're, they're not important on TV because they're not important in the back because it's the, it's the Cena show. So I don't think that's necessarily unique to WCW. So I appreciate your candor and you saying, Hey, it wasn't priority because it wasn't the cash cow. And in, in hindsight, yeah, we should have spent more time on it, but people are still doing that to this day. Right. Yeah, I, I get, I guess they can and they do. Um, and not, they can, I guess they do. Yeah. What I was kind of thinking at the same time I was talking is, you know, I'd like to, you know, to kind of go back in and, and do a little bit of an autopsy of the last five or 10 years in terms of what we as viewers who are not in WWE, you know, what has been that change? Because to me right now, it seems like perhaps consciously or subconsciously WWE is taking a little bit of a different role because with the exception of like right now, especially going into WrestleMania, obviously there's so much focus and attention on Roman Reigns. Um, But in, in that story, but one of the things that I've said and I'm thinking about this as we're talking here, because I've said this before, it's an observation. It's not a critique. It's an observation. My observation is that in WWE right now, so much of everything feels equal, nothing other than going into the main event of WrestleMania. That is there is the exception. But if you take this moment, you know, that we're in out of it and you look at the last 12 months or the last couple of years, it seems like one of the things that WWE has done. And again, just my impression no conversations is to keep WWE as the most important star and everybody else is fairly interchangeable at a very high level. They're all at a very high level. They're all important people, but not one of the stories tends to stand out until you get to WrestleMania. So perhaps there's a conscious or subconscious reason why maybe people are doing it a little differently now, you know, in AEW, if we're just, and, and I haven't thought about this until just now, this is stream of consciousness shit here. All right. But, you know, 
it seems to me that in AEW, AEW is the star and everybody else is a supporting cast member because AEW does, and it's not a critique. It's actually, it's, it's acknowledging perhaps a better way of doing business where you're keeping people at a high level, but not consistently so that they can kind of cycle top talent in and out. And you're not seeing the same version of a storyline or different versions of the same storyline for months on end. You're, you're seeing, you know, look what they did last week in the main event with Dr. Britt Baker, you know, you're seeing different things, but nothing's, you know, who's the face of AEW right now. It'd be hard. It'd be hard to pick one. Right. You could say, who's your favorite performer, but it'd be hard to pick the face of the company. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk about Starcade 97. I promise not to yell about tans, uh, but we've got diamond Dallas page beating Kurt Henning here in just under 11 minutes to win the U S title. Meltzer didn't love it. Only gave it two stars. He says both, both guys worked hard, but the crowd wasn't into it. And the match was only okay. These guys just did not click in or out of the ring. Fair to say. Apparently so, you know, it's unfortunate, I guess, you know, and I haven't really thought about this. This question hasn't been posed to me in uh, a long time. And I, 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 the only thing I do, I know I remember clearly is probably page on any number of occasions going, wow, why does it, why does Kurt hate my guts? You know, why can't, you know, frustration. That's what I'm trying to say. Frustration, not anger, not heat, just trying to figure out. Page trying to figure out what he needed to do to kind of fix it, get the respect. After this, Kurt's just sort of floating around, I guess, as a member of the NWOB team, but he does wind up in a feud with Bret Hart. Who's now obviously in WCW. They get an, uh, a rematch from their famous SummerSlam 91 match at uncensored 98 in mobile, Alabama. Uh, they get 13 minutes and 51 seconds. Brett gets the win. Meltzer would say match was okay, but it didn't have much heat. Uh, it just gets two and a half stars. It feels a little bit like, uh, we're not exactly sure what to do with Kurt here. And maybe some of it is he's not exactly who we thought we had coming in. Do it's you more the, of that? Do you brother, re- it's more, it's more of that. It's more of the latter. Do you remember there being a moment where you're watching and it just, it clicks and you've got your mind made up, man, he just ain't where he was. Do you remember that moment? Uh, generally, you know, I can't tell you what arena I was in or what event we were at, but I think there was a realization, certainly by this point, that the Kurt that I remembered so fondly, the, the performer, not the person, because I always dug Kurt the person, um, but the performer that I was so excited about, partially because I was such a big fan of his as a fan, as a fan growing up in Minneapolis and then to have the opportunity to work with him after seeing him have some great matches. The aforementioned match with Bret Hart in 1991 was a freaking awesome match. Just my still to this day, vivid memories of his matches with Kurt Hennig. That's was my own consciously or subconsciously. That was probably a lot of expectation that I had. And then no matter how hard you tried or what excuses you make for yourself or some, or for somebody else, uh, or writing things off to bad booking or bad timing after a certain point, you just kind of, it's just not there anymore. And you understand why I understood why the, and it was injuries, you know, I mean, it's just you, you fucking back. is kind of a big deal. 
you know, you can work around certain issues, I guess. I, I don't know. I've never had to do it. I just only know because others who do tell me they do. But, um, you know, a back is, you can't sit, you can't sleep, you can't stand up, you can't walk, you can't not walk. I mean, you're fucking in constant pain. And you have to be really careful about what you do in the ring and really work around a lot of things and not do things that you used to be able to do. And I think that reality became clear by this point, for sure. Maybe even before this, after he's working with Brett here, um, Kurt and Rick rude lay Brett out afterwards. And they start a program with the heart foundation. The NWO is going to have a bunch of different tag team matches with Kurt and various NWO members against Davey and Jim. It just sort of gets dropped bringing in Davey boy and Jim Neidhart. Is this another example of you trying to, is it a, an example of you trying to hope that you can get sort of the performers of old, like you did with Kurt, or is it more B, Hey, let's placate Brett. I know that this means a lot to him. No, there was, it wasn't placating Brett, Brett, Brett didn't need to be placated. You know, and I know, you know, Brett has a lot of negative things to say about me and I respond to those negative things, but I, I have also said, and will continue to say that I have a lot of respect for Brett Sure, in a lot of different ways. And I will tell you that when it came to the kind of politics of top talent, Brett was not one of those guys. Brett was very straightforward. It's one of the reasons I really, you know, Brett and I get along really great in the beginning um, because he was as straightforward as you could get. There was no, there were no extra words in the conversation. He was so just perfectly professionally straightforward. There were no extra, there was no extra conversation in a deal with, when you're talking about a deal with Brett, it was very cut and dry, very simple. Uh, and no, he wasn't, he didn't require to be placated may have looked like that from the outside. It may have ended up sounding like that in a dirt sheet uh, or, or people may have jumped to that conclusion for obvious reasons or, or think they were. But it wasn't the case. You know, with, with Davey in particular, it was international. Still, even at this, at this you know, stage of the game, Davey still was a viable, marketable, equitable piece of talent for the UK market, which was still very important to us. Let's, uh, let's move on. Um What's next for Kurt? And after that whole heart foundation thing just gets dropped, he's being groomed for Goldberg. He's going to get a world title shot at uh, bash at the beach. 98. This is just a few days after, uh, Goldberg wins the world title. I guess this is just a continuation of how we built Goldberg. Let's have him get win over wins over, uh, different challengers. And now that he's the world champ, maybe let's step up the competition. So Step aside roadblock. We'll bring out a former big time star, Mr. Kurt Henning. The match goes all of three minutes and 51 seconds. He's Goldberg's 112th victim. Uh, did Kurt understand, you know, what was needed and necessary for Goldberg here? I assume show. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and your character is characterization of why we went from roadblock to Kurt Henning was exactly that after, you know, Bill Goldberg ended up beating 153, you know, people that really didn't matter in the eyes of the audience. These are not big stars in the eyes of the audience, especially early on in Goldberg's trajectory. Um, 
you get to the point where, okay, if this is going to get real and you're going to take Goldberg to the next level, you've got to start putting some names in front of them that matter in order to sustain the momentum. And that's exactly what that was. And Kurt had no issue with it. Eventually, uh, Kurt and Rude are going to stay with the NWO black and white uh, when the whole thing splits up. How was Kurt around this time? I think there's some speculation that there were some TV shows. I forget if it was Nitro or Thunder, where he's in the ring, not wrestling, just doing promos. But it feels like maybe he had dipped into some of Hogan's beer cooler before the show. What was Kurt's demeanor like? Was he hurting? Is he self-medicating? Or is he just down to have a good time and wasn't taking it all that seriously? A little bit of all three, but the latter begets, you know, complacency. You know, when you, when, when was he self-medicating? Absolutely. He was in a lot of pain. He had a lot of issues. He had a lot of bad habits Yeah, that exacerbated all the other issues. And from an audience's point of view, could I could easily see why they felt like he was just walking through it. But, you know, nothing but love and respect for, for Kurt and his family, um, including his kids, who are listeners of the show and, and we follow each other on in social media. But Rick had, Rick had an issue. It's not a secret. We all know. I don't know why he died. And that was those issues were beginning to manifest by this point in, in Kurt's career. Just wanted to take a second to tell you about all the great shirts available at ericbischoff.com. If you haven't checked it out in a while, we've added a lot of new shirts. And check out all the 83 Weeks gimmicks at boxagimmicks.com. Pick up an 83 Weeks coffee mug, get a Know What You Don't Know shirt, or grab a poster of Dave Silva's cover art. Whatever you need to show off your 83 Weeks love, visit ericbischoff.com and boxagimmicks.com. Let's, let's table that and talk about something a little more fun. There's a famous story that, uh, during the ultimate warrior experiment in WCW, Kurt Henning is, uh, finding himself in a spot where he has to hide under the ring and allegedly, you know where I'm going. So why don't you tell the story? No, no, no. You tell the story. Cause you got notes. I'm just winging it, brother. I just have the shit in my head. Allegedly. So to speak, <laughs> he has to go to the bathroom while he's under the ring. And I don't mean like he had to pee in a bottle. Kurt Henning had to take a dump <laughs> under the ring. And apparently he'd been loading up on protein as uh, many guys in this profession do. And this is such a foul smell that also hiding under the ring that night, Scott Norton and the ultimate warrior are physically ill from <laughs> what has just come out of Kurt's rear end. Do you remember this shit going down? Not as it was happening, but I certainly heard about it afterwards. <laughs> uh, just hearing you tell that story again. I, and here's, okay, welcome to the inside of my fucking skull. As you're telling this story, I'm picturing Scott Norton. I can, I didn't know Warrior well enough to imagine what his reaction might have been. Uh, I can kind of hear it in my head just because I can hear his voice his speaking voice, not his warrior voice. Um, but I can, I can hear Scott Norton. Oh my gosh. I wish I had a recording of that. <laughs> I'd have it on my phone. 
Kurt's not seen after fall brawl 98. Uh, he had a loss to uh, Dean Malenko there until he helped you beat Ric Flair at Starcade 98. I think the story was he was having some knee issues at the time, but after that, we get a rather interesting pairing. We're going to team him up with Barry Windham. Who's not an NWO guy, by the way. And we're doing this so they can face Rick and David flair. It's going to be David's in ring debut. Uh, Meltzer would say, uh, oh, by the way, the, the match got 13 minutes and 56 seconds. Uh, but the story is afterwards, of course, the NWO comes down, they handcuff, um, Hollywood Hogan helps handcuff David flair. They whip him with the weightlifting belt. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, hurt feelings about that. We'll talk about it another time, a little more but two and a quarter stars is the rating. And I know the pairing might not make sense from a creative standpoint, but you got to think about it from a Ric Flair standpoint. Hey, who's going to help take care of the kid. And it's his uncle Barry, who once upon a time, a decade prior was one of the best wrestlers in the world. And Kurt Henning, my gosh, I mean, he could have a great match with a broomstick and sell like nobody's business. So it feels like Rick may have handpicked the opponents. Nobody told me that. I'm just guessing. How far off am I? I think you're probably right. I don't think it was, you know, like Rick Flair sitting, you know, in a room by himself and deliberately laying out this master plan to try to get Barry in that spot. I think it was probably a conversation with a lot of people and everybody agreeing how best to kind of create this opportunity and put our best foot forward. You got to have the right people in those in in, in those spots. And not only was Uncle Barry, as you pointed out, Barry Windham, you know, somebody with some connective tissue to the Flair name and history and all that backstory, but I, I ne- I've never met anybody that didn't absolutely trust Barry Windham. Sure. I may not necessarily like Barry Windham uh, or hang out with Barry Windham, but uh, man, the impression, strong impression that I had from day one in WCW was there's always a little bit of distrust amongst the thieves, right? The boys, if you will, not that they're thieves, but you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's a figure, it's a figure of speech, but um, Barry was the one guy that, you know, everybody trusted and respected for you know different reasons. Since the fact that he had a fist, the size of a Fiat, you know, was one of them, but uh no, they've trusted him. And I think the trust, the experience, um, the connective tissue from a storyline point of view or legacy point of view, all of that factored in and probably everybody threw their opinion in and thought it was a great idea. Let's keep going here. Uh, Kurt gets turned on by the NWO on a nitro in Dallas, and he sort of just dumped out of the group. Uh, and now it feels like he's going to have a fresh start. He's going to be a part of the, uh, world tag team title tournament at super brawl. Henning and Wyndham would work Benoit and Malenko twice because it's double elimination. Benoit and Malenko already had one loss while Henning and Wyndham had none. Um, Benoit and Malenko win the first fall to earn a second match, which ends in 20 seconds, but Wyndham pins Malenko to win the tag titles. Uh, and then the return at uncensored gave, um, Benoit and Malenko a win over Henning and Wyndham in a lumberjack match. You know, at least we got a little bit of a bright spot for Kurt here. Because there's some bad news coming. Uh, I guess this is kind of cool. He works a TV main event against a now baby face Hulk Hogan. Uh, that was maybe something we wish we saw a little more of in the WWF. He loses in four minutes, but the bad news is in this era, both Kurt and Barry are going to get hurt. And then Kurt gets some of the worst news possible. One of his very best friends, Mr. Rick rude passes away at just 40 years old. 
Do you remember having a conversation with Kurt? I know there is a video footage of you guys were doing, well, I believe it was called nitro blast on direct TV. So when nitro went to commercial, you could still get exclusive WCW content for like an extra $5 a week or something like that. And they would have people running around doing backstage interviews. And Kurt is really, really upset at the way some of the folks in the wrestling community had responded or not responded, uh, to the loss of the late, great Rick rude. It feels like this death really hit him hard. Did you have a conversation with him about that? Oh, I'm sure we did several, um, Kurt and Kurt and Rick were, they went to high school together. Yeah. You know, they, they known each other since they were kids and they didn't just know each other since they were kids. They were close. Very, very close. So yeah, it was devastating, devastating for, for Kurt. Of course, not too long after that, we would lose Owen Hart as well. Another friend of Kurt's on May 31st in the Houston Astrodome, Kurt Henning comes out and sings country music and Bobby Duncombe jr. Comes out and joins him. Uh, Conan and Ray Mysterio jr. Come out and thus the greatest program in WCW history. It's rap is crap versus the no limit soldiers. My gosh, Kurt obviously loved country music. We've heard those stories before. Is that the reason everyone just immediately thought, oh, we got to give this to Kurt. Or did you also know, Hey man, he's the, the ultimate ribber. He's going to have fun with this and he's going to have a sense of humor for it. Uh, it wasn't so much. He's the ultimate ribber. He's going to have a great sense of humor. It's, you know, I mean, Kurt loved Hank Williams and he, he loved Hank Williams. He was a real like old school country music guy, not new school. You know, he liked the old stuff. Marty Robbins. He loved Marty Robbins. Hank Williams is the one that I heard him talk about the most. I love Willie Nelson. Well, everybody loves Willie Nelson, but again, Kurt loved the old Willie Nelson stuff. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like, oh, he's going to, he's got a great sense of humor or he's got the kind of uh, comedic style that, you know, this angle might need. It wasn't anything like that. It was, man, this is just a natural fit right here. This is sometimes you come up with ideas that just absolutely fit the character perfectly. And sometimes you come up with a perfect idea, but the character doesn't fit quite well enough. You know, this is a situation where we were excited about the idea. This is of course, a long time ago where the idea of pitting country music fans against rap fans seemed to be like a kind of a natural thing. Um, clearly not today. And, and maybe it shouldn't have been back then. I don't know. I'll, I'll, you know, stay open-minded to that discussion, but, um, yeah, are, no, it's you, all about it. Just feeling absolutely perfectly natural. Are you saying that because of, you know, the obvious, the more white people listen to country music, more African-American people listen to rap type deal, or is there more to it than that? No, I think that's it. Yeah. You know, and, and for better or worse, uh, as shallow as it may be. And I know there's going to be enough haters out there that listen to this stuff. They're going to, you know, call bullshit and, you know, so be it, you know, whatever your opinion is, your opinion is all I can do is tell you what I was thinking. I didn't look at it. I know this sounds stupid as a black and white thing. I looked at it like you like blue. I like red, you know, you like oranges. I like bananas. You know, there's a whole bunch of people over here that feel strongly about this type of music. And there's a whole bunch of people over here that feel strongly about this kind of music. And if we can create a storyline that's entertaining where we're making those two 
you know, universes collide in the spirit of entertainment and storyline, then boom, let's do that. It wasn't a, you know, white versus black. It was a country music versus hip hop. That was it. And probably not enough thought, I guess, could arguably be said that, you know, I didn't think deeper than country music and hip hop or I mean, pop versus, you know, classic rock. Well, let me, you know? let me let you off the hook here. I never even thought of it until you just said it when I could tell, Oh, him, but I got a lot of heat for that brother. I got a lot well, of heat here's that. why I didn't now. I know I'm, I know I'm a white dude, but I listened to rap music back then. I didn't listen to country music. So I looked at it as any, if anything, it was cool versus uncool, you know, to, to use an old school term, it was hip versus unhip. I never, it never even crossed my mind that it was white versus black until you sort of tiptoed by the answer there. And I'm like, wait a minute. Are you saying, cause that never even crossed my mind until this very conversation. So I don't think you need to beat yourself up about it too bad because I was the target audience at the time and it never crossed my mind at all. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> Let's talk no, about should have, it shouldn't have, you did position master P as like a lifelong wrestling fan, but he's doing a program with Kurt Henning. And he refers to him here as the cowboy guy. Do you think master P actually was in real life, a wrestling fan? I know he was and still is. I just had a meeting with him about a year ago, New York city. Absolutely is. And he, he reached out to me. I didn't reach out to him. Are you, do you have a new rap album you're working on? Is that in the future? You know, we're, 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 we're laying some stuff down, you know? <laughs> putting some tracks down. I love you for that. Uh, let's talk about, uh, the big payoff here. It's Conan and Ray Mysterio beating Kurt Hanning and Bobby Duncan jr. In 10 minutes and 44 seconds, Meltzer would say Kurt's entrance music should head up most of the worst of lists, but it's bound to be an all time cult favorite. And Henning is going to become a cult baby face for his role in this feud. If the powers uh, that be don't see the future and cut them off ahead of time. Of course, there's even speculation that Willie Nelson was expected to do a vignette with Kurt. And, um, I guess there's even some interest from some different music labels about actually trying to make a thing out of this. They record a video in uh, Nashville on June 25th with the idea that they're playing the instruments, of course. They have no experience with this, but that doesn't keep country stations who are big wrestling fans and who have DJs who are big wrestling fans from not wanting to talk about this. So in a weird way, this feels like a page right out of the Bischoff playbook, because once upon a time you've talked about, Hey, if we can get sports figures involved, uh, and we can run something in the new uh, in, or we can run something in the USA today, then we can get coverage on talk radio all over the country that we didn't have to pay for. And now you've done it, not just with sports talk radio, but country music, which obviously has a much bigger audience than, you know, sports talk radio. Yeah. And there was also this chatter about the merger between Turner and time Warner and the fact that, you know, Warner had a ton of music labels that, uh, there was going to be the supposed synergy that we would be able to exploit and enjoy. So there was a lot of different reasons. I had independence of even before the merger was announced and being contemplated. Um, I had begun working with different music labels in LA who were interested in doing some things. I was, you may not remember, but <clears throat> it was a label called Tommy boy records. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I was working with Tommy <laughs> at Tommy boy records. who's really, a, was a wrestling fan and wanted to do some things. Um, 
Jason Hervey was the one that introduced that relationship, actually. So there was, and there were others, there were three or four other labels that were actually pursuing us because at this point, WCW was getting pretty freaking hot. Yeah. You know, you would open up the business section of the Wall Street Journal and there'd be a full page ad, you know, from ABC trying to convince advertisers not to advertise their product in wrestling because WCW had six out of the top 10 spots in prime time during Monday night football. We weren't number six. We weren't number 12. We weren't number 22. We weren't even number three. We were number one, two, three, four, five, seven, nine in the top 10. So that made us an attractive business partner for a lot of different people that up until that point, we never had been. And record labels were one of them. So between our own initiatives, initiatives like with Tommy Boy, others that were coming to me, and then, of course, what was on the horizon with Time Warner, potentially, you know, there was some thought given to, you know, how do we kind of create a revenue opportunity here with something other than just wrestling that's adjacent to wrestling? Let's talk about Bash at the Beach. We've got an elimination tag match with uh, the Rapids Crap Crew, Kurt, Barry, Kendall, and Bobby Duncan Jr. on one side. Uh, across from them are Conan, Ray Mysterio, Swole, and BA. Uh, and BA is not uh, another name for Master P. It's Brad Armstrong. What? Did you hear that? Yeah, that's crickets, Bubba. No, that's the wheels falling off. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, Rapis Crap disappears. It's replaced by the good old boys. Uh, I'll never forgive you for that. Rapis Crap was over. Goldberg returns after a long absence. Uh, Kurt's finally catching some steam. So, of course, we're going to feed Kurt to Goldberg, but I get why that happens. Uh, on August 19th, uh, this is some news and notes we need to touch on. Kurt's scheduled to once again face Goldberg. But supposedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, he disappears from backstage and Goldberg's match is changed to an opponent of Barry Windham. Do you remember what happened here? How all of a sudden Kurt's not available. He's here and then he's gone. Do not. Next up, we've got your boy, Vincent. That's right. Mike Jones. I'm bringing his meat sauce to uh, join the West Texas rednecks. He's going to become curly bill. I, this is you right here, right? All day. I can look in your background here on adfreeshows.com. That bar looks like a place that Curly Bill would hang out. I know, I know for sure that you have rap as crap on vinyl. Tell the truth. How did Vincent join this group? Probably the same way 75% of the things that you ended up seeing on television started out and came to be, and that's just three or four guys going up and down the road together, bouncing different ideas across, you know, the room or the, the bar or in the car and uh, getting to TV and pulling, you know, Kevin or myself or Kevin and myself or Terry Taylor off to the side or whatever, and, and getting an idea circulating and trying to get traction with it. Uh, I don't think it was one person that said, Hey, I've got the idea of all ideas. Let's do this. I just think it was, you know, everybody contributing, collaborating, if you will. I love that word collaborating. It makes it sound so positive and chummy. Um, but it's really just people bouncing ideas off of each other. And I think once everybody hears an idea and they all kind of chuckle at the same time and feel like it's a good idea, you go with it. You come back to it was a better explanation. I wish it was like a more, you know, 
nuanced conversation about those types of things. But I, I would imagine you should ask Bruce, you know, from his perspective, because he's seen more of this than I have over the years. But to me, some of the ideas that I remember most vividly didn't come about as a part of a plan to come up with an idea. They came about almost by happenstance. Yeah. Just kind of took out a life of their own. Well, you come back on April 10th, Kurt's on that nitro and not too long after Sean Stasiak is renamed the perfect one. And he's put in a program with the former Mr. Perfect that culminates at Slambury 2000. Um, you think Kurt had any issue working with someone called the perfect one? I mean, probably not. It's just good storytelling, right? No, I, no, he didn't have a problem. If he did, he never mentioned it to me. So I'm going to assume he didn't because Kurt probably could have and easily or would have and easily could have just come to me and we would have talked about it. So I'm, I'm going to say, no, he didn't have a problem with it, but I also am going to say, I think by this time, Kurt was, he was never one to just write anything out, <clears throat> but I think Kurt kind of ex- accepted where he was at and the limitations that forced him to get comfortable with where he was at. So I, I don't think he had that kind of internal conflict of, Hey, I'm too big for this, or, Hey, I'm too good for this, or, Hey, I should be doing something else. I think I'd like to think that Kurt had found comfort in the fact that he was in a good, good spot from a financial point of view, in terms of being able to take care of his family. And he was still having fun doing it. It may not have been, it might not have been at the same level he wanted to do it at, but I think Kurt was still having fun doing what he did for a living. Let's, um, let's talk about something that happened here at this slamboree. It happens on May 7th, which is Owen's birthday. Uh, it's also at the camper arena where we know Owen passed away. This is also the same show where WCW regrettably has a big bump planned for Chris Canyon. He's going to come off the top of the cage onto the ramp, but it's been reported that Kurt was not happy with the stunt. And felt like it was maybe disrespectful and maybe that's fans wanting to read into it. But one thing we know we've heard from multiple people is that there was a meeting before this big pay-per-view where the boys are told, now, whatever you do, don't do anything in this spot on the ramp. If you try to take a bump here or do anything physical here, you're going to ruin the big stunt later in the night and you might hurt yourself. This is a, a weak spot in the ramp. Everybody be wary of this. So of course, while Kurt's wrestling Stasiak, he can't help, but to pick him up and pretend like he's going to body slam him right on that very part. And then of course he acts like, oh, his back gave out and he puts him down, but he was known for doing shit like this just to pop the boys in the back who were watching on a monitor. Right? Yeah, he would, but he didn't do it at the detriment of the quality of the show. Right. You know, he picked a spot where he could pull up his version of a rib right there. And he could do it without taking anything away from the match. So if you knew you got the joke, if you didn't know, you would have never figured it out if somebody tried to explain it to you. So yeah, he was really good that way. We, uh, we should also mention that, uh, Stasiak's going to pin hitting with his own perfect plex in seven minutes and 55 seconds. And that's curse last pay-per-view match for WCW. His last TV match, uh, is a win over a future TNA star, Chris Harris, his contract expires in the summer of 2000. Did you have any sort of conversation with him? I know that 
you had an interesting 2000 with WCW as well. Were, would you have been involved in all in, in, in his contract situation? No, I don't think so. I, I probably reviewing it and being aware of it, but I wasn't with, with a small handful of exceptions. wasn't really reaching out to any talent at that point. It was too early. Not, not that anybody wasn't important enough. It was just too early at that point. So no, let's, uh, let's talk about you. Kurt's very brief run in the WWF. Uh, he pops back up and, uh, you're coming in around this same time. Um, I guess actually you're gone. He's gone before you're back. He had the, uh, an incident maybe on the plane ride from hell. And then you come in as the raw GM. So I don't think you guys ever worked together in the WWE. Do I have my timeline timeline? Right I, on that? I, I don't think we did. No. When was the last time you talked to him? Do you remember your last conversation with him? Your last interaction? It would have been WCW, I assume. Yeah, no, it, it, yes, it would have been WCW. I don't remember the last conversation. Um, like I said a little earlier, you know, I think by this point, the injuries, the pain, the addiction, the frustration, the realization that, you know, he probably saw the end of his career much sooner than he wanted to see it coming. All of those things had something to do with it to one degree or another. I mean, in terms of what, what Kurt was his lifestyle and what he was doing to himself, but it was starting to become more and more evident. And Kurt, well, he wasn't the same guy. He was in so many ways because Kurt, I was thinking about this this morning, you know, as I knew we were going to have a conversation about, what Kurt was really like, or at least my impression of him. And Kurt, I think more than anybody else that I can think of right now, really loved life. He loved to hunt. He loved to fish. He loved his family. He loved to laugh. He loved to make other people laugh. That was the Kurt that I still remember, you know, when I think about Kurt Henning, but 99, 2000, that wasn't the same Kurt. In many ways he was, but the shine was coming off. He wasn't as happy as he had been, you know, previous that I had known him. He didn't have that same kind of bounce in a step when, it, when he walked through the locker room. And I don't mean physically, just I mean, you know, the way he carried himself sure. in terms of his energy. You know, he just... He seemed like a little bit of a shadow, just a fraction of a shadow of his former self. And he just didn't seem to be having as much fun. So no, I didn't talk to him. It probably is a result of that. I was going through my own shit. I wasn't as much fun as I used to be either by this point. Right. So no, I, we didn't because of where my head was at and the condition it was in and, and where his was at and the condition his was in, we just kind of drifted apart. Let's, uh, let's mention that, uh, we lost Kurt on February 9th, 2003. He leave, he leaves behind an incredible reg, wrestling legacy. Easy for me to say, uh, with his son, Joe, who we know is Curtis Axel along with his wife and three other children. You knew Kurt in real life. Uh, most people listening to this did not. What are your favorite memories of Kurt and, and how do you think he should be best remembered by a smile? You know, he was just always having fun. He was always trying to make 
somebody else laugh. And like I said, it may have been at my expense or your expense, Conrad, or DDP's expense. So somebody, not everybody laughed. There were certain people in the room that didn't, but um, most people did. And, and, and I think making people laugh was one of the things that motivated Kurt, you know, in addition to all the obvious things like money and, you know, fortune and fame and all that. But it was, I think what he really loved to do was make people laugh. It's how he, it's how he kept himself up. It's how he kept himself entertained is by entertaining everybody else. And that's what I remember about him. I just remember his laugh, man. He had this mischievous eyes. Like he had a great smile. His smile, his laugh was contagious. His smile was contagious, but behind this contagious, like super attractive. And I don't mean in a, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, you know, in any kind of, you know, sexual way, but I mean, his, when he smiled, you smiled, whether you were happy or not, he would make you smile. It was contagious. And, but he had these mischievous eyes, like you're smiling at him, you're laughing with him. And then you're going, well, but what the fuck is he really thinking? Right. He's going <laughs> to get me. When's the other foot going to drop kind of thing. Um, that's what I remember, man. Just a really fun person to be around. Well, we hope that we have uh, done our best to pay legacy to one of the all time or pay homage to the legacy of one of the all time greats. Uh, I don't know that we can really, you know, in a single episode, do him justice. And I know that you weren't there for a lot of his WWF stuff, but man, his run when he was with the WWF was really special. It made it such an impression on, on fans, my age. I mean, to this day, people still talk about guys like him and Rick rude as being two of the very best heels of all time. And to think that they're from the same area, the same high school, the best of friends, a tag team in the AWA, but their presentation could not be more different, but what they both had in common, they knew how to make people hate them. They were phenomenal in-ring performers and they would sell their ass off. And I think sometimes, especially in modern wrestling, we hear maybe older guys in the business say they don't sell enough, man. Nobody ever accused Kurt Henning of not selling enough. In fact, maybe he did a little too much, right? Yeah. Especially towards the end of his career, you know, after the injury started, you know, following him around a little bit too much. Cause he would try to do things that before the injuries he could do in his sleep. Right. Um, and he had a harder time pulling them off. So they didn't come off quite as well, but they, Please, please, please. If you found this interesting, if, you, if you're interested in the history and the legacy of some of the names that we talk about here in the 83 weeks, you know, do Kurt honor or Kurt Hennig dishonor uh, in, in, in respect for him. Go back and watch his match with his matches with Nick Bockwinkle. That's what I'll always remember. And, and while you're there, check him out with Scott Hall. Some, some, some pretty early magic there as well, but his matches with Nick that should be Kurt Hennig's legacy to the people in the industry or who want to be in the industry. Cause that that's to me, perfect. That's Mr. Perfect right there. Boys and girls go watch some Mr. Perfect stuff. Kurt was one of the all time greats and uh, his birthday is coming up on the 28th. We wanted to pay special tribute to him this week. Uh, next week, we're going to be back with a little armchair quarterbacking. We're going to talk about all things, big bang. Of course, we know the big bank pay-per-view didn't actually happen, but if it would have happened, what might it have looked like? What might this new company have looked like? 
under the leadership of Eric Bischoff. Uh, we're doing that just a few days after the 20 year anniversary of the last nitro that happened on March 26th. By the way, if you're interested in hearing a discussion about that, Arn and I are talking about the last nitro tomorrow. Uh, so tune into the Arn show tomorrow to hear that. But next week, man, the big bang, that's sort of like the big, what if in wrestling, right? Eric. Yeah. There's going to be a whole lot of hypotheticals going on in that, uh, in that conversation, but yeah, it'll be interesting to look at because there was a couple, you know, tent poles of strategies and some creative that we knew, you know, we were going to buy into leading into big bang. So while, you know, some of the matchups will undoubtedly be, you know, theoretical, and what could have been as opposed to what was actually planned, but also from a creative perspective overall, you know, I guess I should say a macro creative creative uh, perspective. We'll be able to talk about some pretty interesting stuff and what could have been. Oh, and uh, shout out to the Silva family. They uh, they've got uh, a very special little warrior in their family. Uh, Dave's son is going to have a procedure at the end of the week and uh, thoughts and prayers are certainly with them this week. He's a big part of what we do behind the scenes. And we thank the world of his family. We know you do too. So shout out to Aaron Silva. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be a big week for him and we're pulling for him. Absolutely. Beautiful, beautiful family. That's what really matters boys and girls. And we're glad that you're a part of our family over at adfreeshows.com. And we're glad that our TV dad, Mr. Eric Bischoff is going into the <laughs> hall of fame. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. You know, growing up, my granddad used to say the best snake is a dead snake. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, but I do think the best debt is no debt. And that includes your mortgage. Savewithconrad.com makes it fast and easy. Don't take my word for it. Just ask Kenneth up in Jackson, Tennessee. He says, as a fan of all things Conrad in the podcast genre. Well, thanks for that, Kenneth. I just had to see for myself how this save with Conrad we hear about so often really stacked up. I've purchased a few homes, refinanced several times, and was basically just kicking the can down the road with no real expectation of actually living in a paid-for home. This process with Conrad's team was painless. One actual phone call and several emails to get the required documents for approval was all it took. So very happy. So let me ask you a question. What does the end of your loan look like? How old are you going to be when you pay it off? How old will your kids be? It's weird that we have conversations about other debt. You hear people say, oh, I've got three car payments left. Bro, how many house payments do you have left? If you don't know the answer, don't worry. That's what we're here for. We want to help you get out of debt faster and do it with cheaper monthly payments. But what's that old cliche? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Don't do that. Let us run the numbers for you. And if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. So what are you waiting for? Start saving money today at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And oh yeah, skip your next two house payments. You won't have to make your April or your May payment. What are you waiting for? It's SaveWithConrad.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.